Welcome to the Carlina Show podcast. I'm your host, Carlina Angwin. Today is Tuesday, July 10th, 2018, and this is episode five of the podcast. Today on the show, we have Benjamin David. Benjamin is an author, youth mentor, and fitness entrepreneur. Since Benjamin is in Texas and I'm in Tennessee, we had our conversation over Skype. If you are watching this episode on YouTube, you will be able to watch our video call in just a moment. But first, I have some housekeeping. This episode deals with mature subject matter that may be sensitive to some listeners. We've edited a couple sentences out that may not be suitable for all audiences. However, many of the themes are positive and powerful. Today, Benjamin serves as a youth mentor of a teen depression support group, and that's how we'll begin our conversation. I ask him to describe the hero's journey in a way a young person could understand. You may notice this episode is a little longer than other episodes. Hour one encompasses his childhood and the time he spent in a controversial behavior modification school in Mexico. Hour two encompasses his time in a maximum security prison where he met a mentor who introduced him to books that changed his perspective on life and gave him purpose again. Hour three, we talk about his integration into civilian world with a felony record. But despite everything that has happened, Benjamin strives to be the best person he can be and help others who find themselves on a similar path. Last fall, he wrote his coming-of-age memoir in three months, then published it online. A couple weeks ago, I read it, then invited him on the show. His story is inspiring and is sure to challenge thoughts and perceptions. For Benjamin's contact information, including a link to his book, visit the podcast website and click his guest or episode page. And one more thing. Thank you to Stephen Lorca for video editing, photography, and graphic design. You can help support The Carlina Show by rating and reviewing on iTunes, or visit our new Patreon page and become a patron. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and search The Carlina Show. Now I bring you Benjamin David. Okay, so um, I guess we met a couple weeks ago, huh? Or virtually met. Yeah been a couple weeks now so and we two or three yeah and we've been um communicating on messenger a little bit and then we um had our we talked yesterday briefly and um and you have quite a quite a story to to tell a little bit so that's what i've been told yes (laughs) yeah so um and i have to say i i read your book and um and I, I, I don't know. As, as soon as I read, well, it took me like all of a day and a half or so because when, once I started, like I just, I couldn't stop. And I thought, wow, this Benjamin is quite yeah. an incredible person. Um, so I want to, I want to get to that eventually, but, um, I was wondering if you could start out since we met in a Joseph Campbell's group, I wondered if you could start telling, um, like my, my niece is 12. Okay. And, um, and she asked me the other day, she said, what is, what is a hero's journey? So, um, so I was wondering, since you work with kids or what you work with youth, if you could right. just give like a very brief overview of what the hero's journey is before we get started. 
hero's journey to me is a blueprint for anything that you could go through in life. Um, you know, for a teenager who's in middle school, it could be, you know, or, or the transition from elementary to middle school. Uh, you're leaving your ordinary world of elementary. You're going to a strange new world of middle school. You're going to meet certain teachers along the way. You're going to get new opportunities. You can take new classes now. It's not all about core curriculum. And being able to decide what you want to do, you know, as far as like choir or band, woodshot, maybe it's sports of some kind, you know, these, um, you know, on a deeper level, those are self-discovery things that a child has to, you know, figure out for themselves. And it's a, it's a very simple issue. It's a very simple matter. But um, it's significant nonetheless, because I remember when I was in elementary going into middle school, uh, I chose choir. And uh, believe it or not, uh, choir was some of the best years of my life, you know, so it was it was by choosing that route of uh, or that that path that allowed me to, you know, have fun, essentially, which is what being a kid is all about. It doesn't necessarily always have to be some you know, super serious conflict and struggle, but, um, it, it, you know, there's different levels to the hero's journey and it repeats itself. So, you know, the easiest way to sum it up, I think is just to say it's a blueprint. Um, it gives you a certain amount of awareness of what you can expect next. Uh, for example, like, you know, once, once you leave your ordinary world and you go into the strange new world, oftentimes there's some sort of a mentor that takes you through that transition. And, you know, that could be in the form of a choir teacher, you know, it could be in the form of your PE coach. Um, and, you know, then we all know that there's trials and tribulations and that's going to be, you know, your football games, your wins and your losses. Are you going, are you practicing hard enough? Um, you know, and then you come out on the other end with, uh, more knowledge and experience and you're able to pass that on to other people. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think one of the biggest issues that I dealt with growing up was a lack of uh, foresight, if you will, um, the inability to expect what was coming ahead. Um, and when you're a kid, that's fine and dandy, but as you grow older, you know, you need to have some sort of an awareness of your future, even if it's abstract, mm -hmm. uh, so that you can make these uh, small movements toward that. And, and that's what I like to tell some of the kids that I talk to, because I find that regardless of their socioeconomic background or, you know, what they're doing with themselves, what their gender is, it, you know, a lot of their issues come from the fact that they just simply have no clue what they want to do. And without any sense of direction, they often find themselves in places that they uh, never wanted to venture to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's also part of growing up. So, you know, being able to bumble around, if you will, uh, is part of just learning what you like and what you don't like. However, um, what I like to say, you know, is that if you're going to bumble around and we are going to bumble around to a certain degree, you might as well be bumbling around at least in a general direction of something, mm -hmm. because, you know, 
if, if you're going to bumble around regardless, like we all do, I mean, we're all, most of us are, are doing our best to figure things out. Even, you know, I tell even, even a lot of kids, like even, even adults are just trying to figure this out. You know, there's no book for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but then you have Joseph Campbell who, who said, no, 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 there is a book here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, he pretty much, he, he, I mean, uh, a lot of people consider the man a genius. I like to consider him a genius. He was one of the very first people to ever come up with a concept like that, that is so in depth. Um, and it, it provides people with a blueprint, with a mm-hmm. foresight, you know, so that they have a general direction. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, yeah. It, it, it just, I think it, it, it takes away a lot of the anxiety and, and the, uh, the teenage angst, if you will, because they're all trying to figure themselves out. And mm-hmm. teen, teenagers are very, very rude to each other. Um, because they don't know how to behave. They're, again, they're bumbling around with no direction. It's mm-hmm. all emotional. There, there's no, there's no logical intent really to anything they do. It's all they drive on pure emotion. And so I find that when you give them the wisdom and knowledge of the hero's journey, it gives them that logical mm-hmm. notion of intent to do something. Right. Right. So, okay. Uh, Short yeah. answer is it's just a blueprint, right? It, right, or a flashlight to a dark room. Okay, okay, yeah, that was good. And I think that's a good segue for you to talk a little bit about before we go back to your journey, but just to talk about what you do now. And one of the things that you do is you work with uh, with teenagers, right? Or you you are an admin. If you could talk a little bit about that, and then um, you know what you do um, for work. Um. Well, right now, um, I am doing online fitness training, um, and I'm also a youth mentor in a Facebook group, and I also youth mentor uh, people in real life who I come across, you know, through conversation. I meet adults, and through conversation, they want me to talk to their kids about this or that issue. Um, In my fitness training days when I was running a gym, with my buddy, I'm actually wearing the t-shirt. I did that on purpose, uh, results <laughs> fitness gym. So I got to represent because yeah. that was running results. Fitness was a very, very, um, transformational part of my journey. It really allowed me to, to truly shine. And, and when I was there, I, I met parents and once they heard about my story, you know, this was even before I was really into being a youth mentor. Um, a lot of the, the clients that I would train would say, oh, my gosh, you have to talk to my kid or you have to talk to my nephew. You have to talk to my niece. Um, every parent knows at least one child that's struggling with something. And uh, for me, having gone through all the things that I went through, I feel like you know, maybe I can provide some sort of uh, – insight because i'm not a professional i'm not a psychologist i'm not you know formally educated in any sense of the term uh however while most psychologists learn by reading books i mean i did the same thing Mm -hmm. i just read a whole bunch of books yeah uh and also went through a lot of life events and you know uh 
So training at Results Fitness, we can talk more about that later, but now uh, everything has sort of moved online. And I see the same things on the internet. However, the internet is just so much more condensed. Like where, when I was training at Results, I might, you know, in a month get two or three clients that wanted me to talk to their kids for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. But online, there are literally thousands of these kids and it's just post after post after post of them talking about being bullied in school. Uh, they want to harm themselves, just really far out, saddening things. And I ran a poll in the group once um, a couple months ago. And I said to the group, if you could talk to an adult or your parent, and say whatever you wanted to say without any form of consequence, Uh what would you say? And across the room, 99% of these kids' responses were that they just want their parents to listen to them and take them seriously. Because parents, I think, um, have this sort of been there, done there attitude about their childhood and their teenage youth. Mm-hmm. And being being the hardened adults that they are, they adopt this sort of get over it mentality. And they're sort of, um, you know, projecting that onto their kids. And their, their kids, you know, these are 13 and 14 year old boys and girls that are talking about committing suicide. And I see this every single day. Mm-hmm. And they all say that their parents aren't listening to them. And so who are they turning to? They're turning to complete strangers on the internet because the family institution in most of America, if you look at the statistics, uh, is on a projection of more and more failure every year. Uh, Teen suicides are going up um, every year, ever since uh, Mm -hmm. 2006, it started to really climb. Um, and you could talk about whether or not social media has something to do with that. That, that could be another topic, but, okay. uh, but just to, just to state, you know, studies do show that the, the parallel of teen, uh, 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 what's the word participation on social media does, uh, does rise in parallel to teen suicide. So there is a correlation. Mm-hmm. However, most teens would also say that they have more friends now because of social media, because they're so isolated in the real world. Mm-hmm. They go to school, there's a bunch of kids who don't understand them, they don't pick on them, so they withdraw, they look for people online to communicate with. So meanwhile, it's, it's, it's interesting, because they deal with bullying at home, and then they come home and they withdraw and they get on their phones. And then mm-hmm. us as adults want to sit there and make fun of them for being on their phones all day. What are you guys doing on your phones? When I was a kid, we played outside. Yeah. Well, you know, Mr. You know, Joe, it's because you're not listening to your kid and mm-hmm. they don't think that they can come to you with problems. So you're an ad, you're an admin on that Facebook group. Yeah. I'm an admin to a teen depression group that has almost 3000 members right now. Are you the only admin or are there other admins? 
there's, I think, six others, but I'm the most active. Okay, okay. And then um, you have your online business, and then is there anything else that you want to mention about what you're doing right now before we go back um, to your your journey? Mm, not really. You know, I mean, you know about the book that I wrote. You mentioned that a second ago, and, you know, that that's a work in progress, too. Mm-hmm. But not, not really, no. That okay. pretty much sums up most of it. Okay, okay. All right. Um, yeah, so if you want to um, just talk a little bit about your, your childhood and, um, and when things started to change for you as a teen. My childhood was hot and cold. It was never lukewarm. Um, and, you know, opinions and things of that nature are always, you know, subjective to that individual. You know, mm-hmm. one person could feel one way or another about it. Uh, but me in particular, I like to describe it as hot and cold. Um, things were either really good or they were really bad. There wasn't a whole lot of in between. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, growing up, uh, my my dad worked his ass off for the family. Um, he wasn't around much because he was working so hard. Um, so financially, we never were without uh, because he was always willing to do whatever it took to pay, make sure the bills were paid, make sure we had food and things of that nature. Uh, but he was never around because of that. So I was around my mother most of the time, uh, incidentally, and she had demons. She was into heavy drinking, um, and she liked to smoke a lot of weed or, or pot, whatever word you want to call it. But it was the drinking uh, that really got out of hand sometimes. It wasn't the, the weed, you know, she didn't really, I don't really have a problem with all that right there. There's a lot of medical benefits for it, but that's besides the point. It's the alcohol that I had a problem with because that is what caused the most issues for me. So growing up, um, by the time I was in first or second grade, third grade, uh, I had already been exposed to seeing my mother completely passed out, throwing up on stuff, just being belligerent. Uh, and, and that's confusing to see for a kid. And, you know, my dad would come home and he would have to clean up after her. Sometimes she would just disappear. You know, uh, she would just disappear off to a, a bar, I'm, I'm assuming. And she wouldn't be home. And I would be you know, at the house and my dad would come home and where's your mother? Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm seven. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. You know? Uh, so I, I, I remember I, some of my, some of my earliest memories actually are me and my dad driving around the back roads of, uh, the colony in the early nineties, wondering where the hell my mom was and totally expecting her to be crashed somewhere and possibly very hurt. Uh, and then the next day I had to get up, brush my teeth and go to school and pretend everything was normal, you know? And so, uh, after a while of that, um, you know, I, I stopped taking school seriously, I guess you could say, because, uh, at, at home, sometimes it was just so stressful and, and school, uh, unfortunately became a social escape where I just wanted to have fun. 
And I had plenty of fun at home, too. Don't get me wrong. That's why I say things were either really good or really bad. And there were plenty of good moments, too. Uh, so I don't want to discredit all the good moments, and I don't want to take away from this to be that there weren't any. Because there, there were. There were a lot. Um, but the bad moments were, were bad. You know, it was just, just things that a kid shouldn't see. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I believe in third grade I was enrolled into a... Uh, martial arts school in the colony which was really nice and there were several times where she would go to the bar after dropping me off at the martial arts school and she would just get plastered and forget to pick me up and I would be at the martial arts school by myself you know in the dark in the parking lot until seven or eight o'clock in the evening rolled around when my dad got home I wasn't home she wasn't home so he went to come look for me at the martial arts school and there I am and where's mom? I don't know. I'm in third grade. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know what's going on. Yeah. Um, and it was just, you know, there, there was a lot of that. Um, and uh, let's see. It's, it's just difficult to rationalize that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they were just problems. Like she had issues. I, I remember being a kid and mm-hmm. being absolutely, absolutely terrified of her because she would, you know, she would chase me around. She would scare me. She would scare me on purpose and then think it was absolutely hilarious when I was crying and terrified. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, th- those weren't fun moments. You know, why is, you know, I'm, I'm in third, fourth grade. Why is my mother chasing me around? you know, with kitchen utensils, trying to scare the crap out of me. Mm -hmm. I don't understand what's going on. I knew it had something to do with this drink she kept drinking. Right. Um, And, you know, I even had a dream that I'll never forget where it was was almost a third-person dream where I'm watching myself sleeping. And I see her come into my room, and she pours alcohol bottles all over me while I'm sleeping and then lights me on fire. Like no child should be dreaming about something like that. Right. I mean, so it's pretty serious stuff and it is what it is. But somehow, uh, you know, she went to rehab later on in, in fourth grade and she was in a rehabilitation facility for, six months to a year I can't exactly remember Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know me and my dad would go visit her and you know but the doctors there I gotta back up before she went to the rehab she had broken her leg and you know because she was on her way to an AA meeting and I used to go with her me and my buddy uh, would go with my mom to these AA meetings after school like what like that's another thing you know like while most kids are out, you know, having soccer night or playing Monopoly with their family, like I was going to AA meetings with my mom. I knew I knew what a twelve-step program was in the third grade. Yeah. You know, um, and it's just not right. You know, it, it's not right. Yeah. And some people have this attitude of like, well, I dealt with it, and this and that. Well, okay, man, you you dealt with it your way. I'm happy. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh. So you come. So, you completed the eighth grade, is that right? Yeah, I, I'm, I completed eighth grade. I went into ninth grade, uh, uh-huh. but I didn't exactly finish ninth grade. <laughs> okay. Is that when things started to change for you? And would you for say me, in ninth grade? Uh, 
Yeah, I think it was after, you know, years of just seeing, you know, rampant poor behavior. In ninth grade, uh, this is going to sound silly, but, like, I had my first girlfriend in ninth grade. Mm-hmm. And she happened to smoke weed. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that point in my life, I guess... Maybe it was me throwing away my ideals of drugs are bad. Maybe I had given up on that notion after just years of seeing what my mother did to herself. And, you know, like maybe I felt like, what's the use? Maybe I was at some point in my life where I just didn't care anymore. Like, screw it, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. So she comes along, she smokes weed, and I'm like, you know what? This stuff ain't such a big deal. I'll go ahead and try. So I did. But uh, before I did, I actually told my mom I was going to do it. And she was mad. She was very upset. She says, Benjamin, no, you're not. You're not going to do that. I said, I literally looked at her and I said, yes, I am. There's nothing you can do to stop it. And I'll never forget that. I remember it clear as day. I said, one way or another, you can ground me. You know, I'm still going to have to go to school. I'll find a way to get it. I was absolutely determined to do this. And I, I don't know why. I just was. You know, uh, maybe it was rebelling. Maybe it was not caring. Maybe it was just a poor choice. I have no idea. Maybe it was all three of those. Um, but anyway, she thought about it for about a day or so. And then she came back to me and said, well, you know what? If you're really going to do it, I'd rather you let me get it for you so you don't get something that's bad or you don't get hurt during the process of trying to find it. Mm-hmm. Completely, in my mind, you know, looking back at it, the most well-intentioned answer ever. She did. She was willing to do it herself in order to harm me from any potential dangers. Because she knew I had her absolutely convinced I was going to do it with or without her approval. Mm-hmm. I, I probably would have. But she could at least control it to some degree. And well, good intentioned answer, but the most catastrophic result, because all that did was create a very fast downward spiral into a drug induced oblivion. I did not finish ninth grade. Um, I failed everything except gym, which is, (laughs) that's kind of cliche, but it's true. And, um, I dropped out. I didn't even, I don't even believe I finished the year. I don't remember. And the following year I was sent to a private school for, uh, troubled youth in the area. And I was, I was there for another year, but I just screwed off the entire time. And, uh, I was, you know, by this point I was, you know, doing even more drugs. I was even selling them to kids on campus and, uh, one of the students there had told on me and I got expelled. So I dropped out of high school. I got expelled from a private school. And, uh, so yeah, the last public grade that I actually passed was eighth grade. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that was when, you know, after I'd gotten expelled, I wasn't going to school for a couple of months. And, you know, during this time, by the way, I was into some pretty nefarious activity. Um, 
I don't know if you want to go in on that. I don't know if it's uh, relevant to the conversation, but uh, I, I mentioned some of it in the book. Yeah, you can describe that if you'd like, yeah. Well, um, it, it goes back to not having a direction in life, you know, and this is one of the reasons why I like to tell young people about, you know, the hero's journey, because for me, the hero's journey, the concept, it completely changed my life. I literally view everything through the blueprint of the hero's journey. It just provides an insane amount of insight. And back then, I was unaware of these things. I was unaware of any direction. Um, you know, my, my, as the years went on by, me and my dad uh, sort of grew apart, if you will. Um, I don't necessarily know why it's probably because he just worked all the damn time and we didn't, he didn't, by the time he got home, he was just ready to relax. You know, um, my mother refused to work. She would not get a job. And, uh, you know, so what, I mean, what does a kid do who's completely out of control with no direction, you know, and influenced by drugs? Well, they, they steal things. They, they sell more drugs. They, they, you know, I thought I was some kind of badass, you know, and, and how I old were you? How old were you at this point? 15. Okay. Uh, I guess from a certain perspective, I was, you know, uh, I was hanging out with some pretty rough dudes that I met, you know, one way or another. And, you know, I even write this in my book and my family absolutely despises that I even talk about this at all. Um, and I can understand why, but it's my truth and things happened for whatever reason. But, um, I, into this day, like I, ha I, tr I have serious issues talking about it because I'm just so ashamed of it. Mm -hmm. Um, but I was into some pretty far out stuff with some pretty rough dudes and I would prefer on, you know, at least on camera, we just leave it at that. That sounds, yeah. 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 If, if readers, if, if people want to know more about it, they can just pick up the book. Right. Because it is really hard for me to talk about. Yeah. But, um, okay. You know, because I just hate the way it sounds. Yeah. You know, the solution to all of that, you know, would have been, you know, if, if I had somebody or, or, or just, something else other than the, the drug lifestyle to influence me. And by the time it was really bad like that, I was too far gone. You know, I was a lost cause. Mm -hmm. I, I truly believe that I was, I was one of those cases where, uh, I was just a lost cause. You know, some people are just too far gone. Um, because I even got to the point where I started becoming worse than the people who introduced me to all this stuff. I remember there was a point one night we were out causing ruckus and I wanted to do something that one of the other guys was even afraid to do. And it's like I had a death wish or something, you know, like, and looking back on it again, like, I don't know if it's because of how I was raised, you know, around my mother specifically and whether, like, I, I just don't understand. Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I could call it this and that over here. I could say that I was mad at the world. I could say that, you know, uh, 
I could blame my problems on environment, uh, but I'm not, I don't want to do that mm-hmm. uh, because that's not who I am now. Uh, the way that I am now, I do not blame my problems on the environment. I, I see that the environment has problems, but I now just find a solution around them because I have direction now. I have a better direction. Right, right. So, okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and that's why, you know, the whole blueprint thing mm-hmm. is very important, I think, to young kids because, and, and to go back a little bit and answer what gives me authority to talk to kids Mm-hmm. Is because I, I've been where they are. I have been where they are, and I have been worse, and I have a criminal record to prove it. Mm-hmm. You know, most people have a college degree to prove that they're very smart. I have a criminal record to prove that I was very dumb. And I have my lifestyle now in my business to prove that I got over it. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. so that's my that's my validation right there. Right. You know, is that. So mm-hmm. that's what gives me the authority to talk to people. Right, right. Okay. Um, okay, so let's move t- into um, your time in Mexico and how can you describe the day where you were in your house and you were sent away? Yeah, that was. Uh, how old were you? That was insane. I was uh, 17. Okay. Uh, it was February 2004, uh, the 23rd or the 24th. For some reason, I can't decide which of those days it was, but it was definitely one of them. Um, and it was after I got expelled from that private school. It was a couple of months after I got expelled. I was just sitting at home doing nothing, uh, just selling drugs out of the house. Um, you know, and it, and it was getting pretty far out. Uh, I remember prior to going to Mexico, um, the the cops were starting to circle our house quite often uh, during the daytime. And uh, me and my buddies would be sitting in my room playing video games, probably high. And we started to realize that a cop would drive past the street almost like every 30, 45 minutes. And so we used to make stupid raps about it and think it was funny and whatnot. But... Um, before anything happens, you know, my mom decides and my dad decides, you know, hey, we're going to, we need to do something with this kid because, like, he's not listening to us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was, uh, I was definitely uh, too far gone. And so they heard from a neighbor across the street who sent their kid to a similar school several years ago and talked about how great it was. It changed his life, this and that. And uh, so they looked into it and decided that, you know, maybe they would have a chance. Um, So unbeknownst to myself, I'm about to be sent to a school. I have no idea. So you didn't know any of this at that moment. This is all in reflection. Yeah, this is in reflection. I didn't have any idea. So uh, I hear a knock on my door and I wake up and I look over and my dad peeps his head into the door. And he says, have a good day, Benjamin. And uh, he leaves the door slightly ajar as he walks off. And, like, that was super odd because he doesn't do that. He just goes to work. And uh, I, I remember sitting there kind of, like, just stuck in a thought of, like, what was that about? You know, and just as I was about to just brush it off, these two massive dudes, like, 
with almost special forces precision, like rush over to where I'm at. And I'm freaking out. Like, I don't even know what to do at this point. These guys are in all black. Uh, they're huge. And they're immediately like telling me to sit still very loudly, sit up, don't move. Where's your clothes? Where's your stuff? And I don't have a freaking idea what's going on, you know, but in the back of my mind, I still remember being slightly calm about it because my dad just let these people in here. So we're not getting robbed. My life doesn't seem in danger. And it appears that they are asking me where all my stuff is at. So I tell them, you know, okay, my shirts are over here. My, I got shorts in this drawer, you know, whatever. So uh, they gather all my stuff. They get me dressed uh, and they, they pick me up by uh, both arms. They handcuff me in the back and they pick me up through both arms and they carry me out into the house. And uh, there's this, this panel van sitting outside of our house and it's like one of those vans that you see in those like scary movies where like some creepy dude throws a female into the back of it. Like that's the type of van that they were putting me in. I was like, what is going on here? Like this is totally far out and bizarre. So they put me in this van and they, they put me in the chair and then they, they like shackle my feet to this hook in the bottom of the van. And I'm like, this is insane. This is like some Gestapo stuff right here. Where was your mom? So I didn't see her. Oh. Yeah, I did not see her. Uh, later on, I found out she was in the back bedroom crying her face off. But, uh, okay. yeah, so they, they, we just drive away. And, you know, I didn't say anything. I, I didn't say a single thing to these guys. I, I, don't, I don't recall asking where we were going. Uh, they did ask me if I wanted to watch a movie, and I I thought that was absurd. Oh, no, I don't want to watch a movie. Like, who are you guys? Like, you got popcorn too? Like, what the hell? <laughs> like, I don't, I'm not in the yeah. mood to watch a movie right now. You know, this is totally weird. Yeah. Like, golly, man. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Uh, so we drive for hours. I don't have any idea where we're going. And uh, we get to the airport in Oklahoma City. I, I asked him, I'm like, dude, where the hell are we going? And I finally just get frustrated with all these thoughts in my head. And he tells me we're going to the airport. It's all you need to know. And I was like, okay. And the other guy's like, you're going on vacation. I'm like, all right. So we're going through the airport. And it's a normal day in the airport. Completely normal. People going about their business. Families coming and going on vacation. Business people. You know, people cleaning and mopping the floor. Completely normal scene at the airport except two huge special forces looking dudes uh, carrying a shackled kid in between them through the airport terminal. And I remember everybody was just giving us a huge berth. Like I was some sort of nefarious, like criminal mastermind or something from a movie. And like, everybody's making way. Like we have a freaking security escort going through the, the terminal and like, what is this, man? I'm just a 17-year-old kid. I don't need all this stuff. Like, uh, but, you know, so that was just pretty far out. And then we get on the airplane and we fly to what I later realized was San Diego. I didn't know where we were going. Um, we get to San Diego and then the guys that I was with, they hand me over to two other guys 
And we get up in this beat up red sedan, just like some piece of crap out of a junkyard or something. And we go into it and start driving south. And, you know, nobody's talking to each other. You know, um, I have back then I was never really uh, all that extroverted. I was more of an introvert. And I and I knew through my street smarts, if you will, to use that word. Um, I knew in a situation like this, it's probably best to just not say anything, like just observe as much as you can about the situation. And we start to cross the border and we're going into Mexico. It says, welcome to Mexico and all this stuff. And, uh, I'm just sitting there thinking to myself, like, what the heck is going on? We're going to Mexico. What is this? And we continue on driving for probably another 45 minutes uh, down this coastline and we're passing all these like super shanty villages and like, like, like beautiful coastline on one side, shanty villages on the other side. And I just remember staring out the window at the ocean. I've always loved the ocean. You know, some of my fondest memories, um, my dad, he did take us to Hawaii a couple of times. and My mother managed to ruin the vacation uh, with her drinking, but, uh, we did go to Hawaii. And so there was, you know, I just love the ocean. And, uh, I remember just staring out at it, wondering what was going on. Um, I didn't know where I was going and in for, and, you know, I remember not caring where I was going. And I think that was looking back on it now and reflecting now, I think that was a major, um, theme if you will of that era in my life i just simply didn't care where i was headed you know uh, maybe i had given up on life maybe i felt that it was all rather pointless my grades had always sucked in school i felt like my home life was a disaster so what's the use you know what what motive do i have to do good when i've been surrounded by shit my whole life at least that's how i felt mm-hmm. you know um And I I just didn't care where I was going, you know? And so we finally get there and it's this, this giant wall, right? It's this huge concrete wall, probably a good 20 feet high, 30 feet high. And these big giant red barn doors and they honk the horn and some Mexican guys get out and they like hurry and open the door and we drive in and we're in some sort of a courtyard area and um, they close the door behind us. The door in front of us is closed. There's a door on the side of us, which is like a people door, not a car door that leads into a building. And we went up in there. And from there, we went upstairs. They led me upstairs and I, I saw a bunch of other boys and they all wore khaki pants with uh, shower slides, no socks. Uh, tucked in blue shirts uh, and they all had shaved heads and I was like wow what's going on here like some sort of a weird school what's going on so they take me up to this building and they put me in this room and these two guys are sitting at the desk and uh, if I remember correctly one of them is named Jade and he was like the head honcho of this facility and this guy is 
you know, he, he's got a laundry list of abuse allegations and claims against this guy. But that's another story. What's the name of the place uh, you were at? Casa by the Sea. Okay, and yeah. what is it? Just It's supposed to be some enchanted program for troubled kids to uh, find themselves, to figure out what's wrong with them. And on, on paper and in the brochures, it sounds really great. It's got pictures of people looking happy. They're playing in the ocean. They're having a great time. Big smiles. Uh, but in truth, it was anything but that. Are these the, U- U.S. kids, or where are the kids from? They're they're from all over. Uh-huh. You know, uh, most of them are from California because probably uh, location proximity. But there were kids from all over the United States. Mm-hmm. I met guy. I met a dude from Dallas. Uh, I met another guy from New York. There was a guy from Miami. And you know these are all pretty troublemaker kids. I mean, the kid from Miami, he was he was into some pretty rough stuff. The kid from New York was into rough stuff, and so was the other kid from Dallas. Uh, and I, I think out of the four of us, and there was another kid from uh, Sacramento, California, who I mean, this guy was probably the most gang legit of us all. I mean, this guy had I mean, he was 15 years old and had gang tattoos, scars all over his body. Uh, but, uh, so, th- I, so, this was, so this wasn't for kids in Mexico. This was for kids from Americans. the U.S. And were there other countries, Americans. did you say, that there were other countries? Or, uh, like I UK? had a buddy from, from the U.K. He was, I think, England. He had, a, he had an English accent. Okay, okay. All right. And but, yeah, yeah. But, okay. So go ahead. But, so continue with your story. So I just wanted to set some context for where you were. Yeah. Oh, uh, no problem. Um, so it's, it's a school meant to just change the behavior of troubled kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, like I said, it sounds really good on paper and they made it sound really well. And they had all these promotional videos uh, and, you know, it's just propaganda. You know, they're just propaganda videos. What's really going on inside is some really freaky brainwashing stuff. You know, we had to go to these weird seminars and uh, just far out stuff. And the, and the seminars were boys and girls. See, Boys and girls were segregated. Boys were on one side of the facility and girls were on the other side of the facility. But during these seminars, uh, they would put us in the same room. We're still segregated, but we're put in the same room. And the seminar leader, who's more akin to a quack doctor and televangelist, they would have us do the most crazy rituals and they would make us try to relive our trauma experiences by role-playing them. And I remember one girl uh, was was uh, molested by her stepfather, or it might have been her father, I don't remember exactly. But she had to role-play that out. So according to these seminar leaders, the only way that she'd get over her trauma is to keep role-playing it until she became desensitized to it. And the whole time the seminar is narrating what's going on, you know, and trying to evaluate the psychological processes and get us to be aware of our, you know, inner emotional landscapes. But we can't say anything. We can't do anything because the way that they would punish you was brute force. Um, I, I seen a kid get backhanded by a grown man because he asked a question, you know, out of turn. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and just totally a 13 year old kid, his name was Jeff. And 
blonde haired kid. He was sort of a troublemaker, but he's a 13 year old kid and he's put in this environment where everything is strict structure. And, you know, he probably had attention hyperdeficit disorder and just you know, had a harder time controlling himself than other kids. And he asked a question without raising his hand. Big deal. This grown ass man backhands the dog crap out of him to a 13 year old kid, you know, and like this, the type of stuff that was going on there. It was just, it was just uncalled for. Um, and, uh, I was there for six months Wow. and, uh, luckily I was there when I was 17, uh, because when I turned 18, being an adult, I could choose to leave. Whereas some of these kids were 13, 14, I mean, they were going to be stuck there for a long time. And I felt real bad for these kids. And I just didn't, I couldn't fathom growing up through an environment like that at that type of an age, you know, when a mm -hmm. real psychologist, when you understand, you know, the developmental stages of boys and girls, uh, you know, at, at those ages, they're trying to figure out who they are within various social groups. Mm -hmm. So when you throw them off into something that's more like a concentration camp, you are totally destroying a very important aspect of their development. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm, one of the groups on Facebook that I'm also in is a survivor group uh, specifically meant for people who've been to these schools. And they're all over the world. And they're, are they still a, open? A lot of them are, yeah. Uh, and they just change, you know, they get sued. They get shut down. They change the name. They change the company. I mean, it's a billion-dollar industry, and it's a really big problem here. Uh, and what did they, you said that they um, altered your, like your communication, your emails and letters? Yes. Uh, so once a week, we were allowed to write home and uh, we had to do so by writing a Word document on a computer. Mm -hmm. And they specifically told us not to say anything bad about the program or we'd be punished. Uh, we only were allowed to talk about good things and how awesome we're doing. So they literally told us what to write. So, and not only did they tell us what to write, they would alter and inject program jargon into our emails. What I mean by that is when we wrote our letters to our parents, we had to basically just make a word document and save it. And then it was up to somebody else within the administration to take that word document and turn it into an email and then send it. So if we, if we said anything that they didn't like, they would alter it. And uh, they did the same thing to incoming letters. And I remember receiving a letter from, you know, my parents, or at least I thought it was from my parents. And they were using a language and verbiage that they don't use. You know, like I might be young, but I know when my parents are speaking to me. Mm -hmm. uh, and these letters that I was getting were not written by my parents. And so it was sort of a hush-hush topic among all the kids there that, hey, do your parents talk like this? No, mine don't either. Oh, wow, I wonder what's going on. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, if that conversation were overheard, we'd all be in serious trouble. Okay. Um, and so is this an, was this an American-owned owned business in Mexico? Yes. Okay. Yeah, and it was in and it was in Mexico because 
uh, certain states have uh, various levels of regulation on uh, youth reformatory schools. Some schools have more regulation and oversight than others, depending on what state it's in. So this one is in Mexico, where you guessed it, there's no regulation. So they pretty much could do whatever they wanted to. Um, there was another school in Mexico where they force marched a kid in the desert because uh, where we were at, you know, geographically is considered a desert. And uh, he died. A 14-year-old boy died in one of these schools from being force marched all day. And they tried to cover it up. And it didn't exactly work out the way they intended to. And this company had to shut down that school. Uh, but the way that the businesses are structured, they're all independently operated. Mm. However, there's like, it's it's a weird structure. I'm not sure how they get it. It's like away. a franchise, maybe? or Fran It could be a franchise, yeah. Or like some sort of an umbrella structure or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, but... Uh, they're all ran by the same top dogs. But the way that the structure is, if something happens at one school, only that school can be affected. It's mm -hmm. not gonna funnel into the other schools. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why it's been so hard to get these guys as a whole completely shut down. And I'm actually part, or was part, of a class action lawsuit against Casa by the Sea where I was. Mm -hmm. uh, they were, in 2004, uh, later on that year, I believe in uh, September, I think it was September, they were uh, officially shut down for illegal use of a pharmacy. Uh, but what spurred that was uh, allegations of abuse, uh, mm -hmm. because every now and then uh, people would sneak in cameras and this is very closely guarded. I'm sure you've watched a documentary before mm -hmm. where a journalist would sneak in a body camera to see what's really going on at the meat factory. You know, it was basically that sort of an operation that mm -hmm. got that place shut down. Okay. And it's a, sh it's a shame because these are, you know, children's lives. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it took somebody with a hidden body camera to figure out what was really going on. Right, right. Okay. Um, so then, so you turned 18 and you were able to leave? Yes, I turned 18. I was able to leave and they offered me $10 and a bus ticket to Tijuana. And after that, I was on my own. So tell me about that uh, day. That was an interesting day. Um, it was, you know, I was 18 I tried to stay there a little bit longer because my parents wanted me to at least finish high school. They said if I could just hurry up and get my high school diploma, they didn't necessarily care if I finished, you know, the behavior part of the program. They just wanted me to get a freaking degree, mm -hmm. and then they were fine with that. Uh, ironically enough, in hindsight, the degrees that they were giving kids aren't even accredited degrees, so it wouldn't have mattered anyways. It mm -hmm. would have been a complete waste of time. But we didn't know that at the time. Um, so I, I was sitting there after a group therapy session 
just listening to these idiots drone on and on about how we need to do this and that. And I just didn't care. I was over it. I was so over it. And I had the option to leave and it just kept playing on the back of my mind. Like this, this place sucks. It's abusive. The rules are terrible. You know, nobody likes it here. You can leave. What are you still doing? That, that was what was going through my head. And, you know, they said, well, if you leave, you know, you're going to, you know, your parents aren't going to take you back. They, they told us they don't want you back until you get a degree so or a diploma. And I told them, you know what, I really don't care right now. I am so done with your guys' stuff. And uh, so they, they were like, okay, is this your final decision? Is this what you really want to do? And I said, yeah, I'm ready to leave. And they're like, okay, well, let's talk to your parents first, see if they can get, uh, talk you into staying. So I talked to my parents and I was like, you guys, this place sucks. It's not what you think it is. And, and you know, I, I want to leave. I, I couldn't outright say what was going on over the phone because I don't know what this guy's going to do. You know, uh, I've seen what they've done to other kids, and I certainly don't want that happening to me. So I didn't know if I could just blurt everything out right then and there. Um, so I just, you know, opted for saying I'm not staying. And whether you like it, I'm going home. And, uh, you know, they were firm. They were like, nope, if you, if you leave, we're not helping you. You're going to be on your own. You know, you want to be a grown man, you know, this is what it's like. And so I was like, okay, fine. Again, this is sort of my don't care attitude, my rebellious, uh, anti authority. I'm going to do things on my own attitude is coming up. And, and maybe it, you know, maybe there's been times in my life where that has saved me from some sort of trouble. But uh, I decided to leave anyway. So they sent me a, 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 to Tijuana on this like super rickety bus. Like I thought this thing was going to fall apart. And uh, as we're driving down the highway and we finally get to Tijuana, they uh, let me off. Uh, and I'm on my own in Tijuana. I'm, you know, 18. I've been 18 for maybe three weeks. And I'm in Tijuana with no supervision. And I got $10. And uh, I had no idea where the border was, so I just started asking people that I thought could speak English. And, uh, you know, and to back up a little bit, uh, in CASA, you're not allowed to speak English. You have to speak Spanish because the staff is all Spanish speaking. They don't understand English. So if we were caught speaking English, they just assumed we were making escape plans and we got in big trouble for that. So... When I was in Tijuana, I saw what I thought was an American man sitting on a bench. And I immediately went right to this guy. And, and the first thing I say to this guy was, do you speak English? And he says, yeah. And I was like, thank God. And I was like, do you have any idea where the border is? I'm trying to get across the border before the sun goes down. Because it was in the evening. And I did not want to be in Tijuana at night uh, by myself. You know, um, I'm wearing some strange looking uniform, my head is shaved and I have a backpack full of stuff. You know, it's very odd. Uh, it, it, it's not what you would expect a, a hiker to have for sure. But anyways, I find my way across the border. Um, and I make, I find a payphone on San Ysidro Boulevard, right across the street from a Jack in the box. And that Jack in the box is still there. Like you can go on Google maps and you can like zoom in so far to street level. You can see the jack in the box 
and the pay phones where I was at making this call. And oddly enough, like every now and then, uh, I sort of do that on my own just when I'm feeling nostalgic because it was a very strange moment in my life. You know, uh-huh. like I had just spent six months in the most bizarre place imaginable uh-huh. and being, being out in the open after that, you know, like I felt like, I don't know. It was just so surreal. Like being in that place was surreal and then leaving it just as much was also surreal. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to, I don't know how to describe it outside of that word. Yeah. Uh, but it's it just almost like it was just so far out and, you know, uh, dreamlike. But I made the call, uh, long story short, after some discussion, uh, they decided that they would uh, get me a bus ticket home. So, you know, we stayed on the phone. I got a hotel uh, and the bus that was going from San Ysidro back to Dallas wasn't going to be in for, I think it was like three days. So I had to stay in this hotel by myself for three days. And uh, for those three days, I just pretty much wandered around all over the place. And it was, it was fun, you know, to have that sense of freedom after so long and uh, it, it was an interesting experience. It was one of the first times in my life where I was truly felt in a foreign world, like, like, like a prisoner being released or escaped. Like I, I can't even, I can't compare that experience in a way, mm-hmm. uh, because the words just don't, they don't feel accurate. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to put into words, but it's just, it was just strange. It was weird. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, uh, it was a profound moment because it was just, again, I'm at a loss for words. I mean, I don't yeah. even know how to describe it. You were there for three days? Yeah, it was okay. three days. Okay. And then you got on, sorry, I had a plane going overhead. If you may have heard that. <laughs> um Okay, so then you got on a bus back to Dallas? Yes, so we got okay. back to Dallas. Um, and I saw my mom for the first time. And I just want to state, mm-hmm. for the record, uh, I love my mom to death. I have a tattoo uh, that says, for my mom, on the side. Because she, she passed away later on. But um, in spite of all the stuff that we went through together, you know, just like I said in the beginning, there was moments of extremes, really goods and really bads. And some people could say that maybe I'm some sort of a, uh, codependent or, you know, just manipulated person, uh, into liking somebody who was not good for you, you know, whatever terminology you want to give it, I really don't care. You know, you can classify it as whatever. But, I mean, at the end of the day, she's my mom. I love my mom. Um, And I still love my dad. We don't talk a whole lot. But, uh, you know, it's because he's busy doing his thing and I'm busy trying to do mine. And uh, But it was the first time I saw them when I got back. And it was interesting. You know, I didn't know what to expect. It was like, you guys, like, y'all literally just sent me to the most screwed up place imaginable for a child. And, uh, 
but yet here I am happy to see you. <laughs> so like, uh, mm-hmm. welcome home. Like we just sent you to the most abusive boarding school known to man right now. Uh, but here, here you go. Here's a hug. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was strange. Um, and I very quickly hooked up with my old friends and I somehow used being sent away as a way to bolster my street credibility. Uh, I had an enormous chip on my shoulder. Uh, I thought that, you know, I had been locked up now. And for a kid who's got that sort of street life mentality, being locked up is a a rite of passage. Mm -hmm. So when I got out, I was just 10 times worse than how I went in. Like, I thought I was bad before I went in. When I came out, I was a monster. It was just not like... And then I went to prison, and I totally needed that. I deserved it. Do you want to talk about the in-between becoming home and, and going to prison, anything about that? I mean, there's really, there's really not much to say. It's just more of the same stuff, you know, just a bunch of nefarious activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I went right back into doing what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it was almost like if I didn't, I didn't learn anything, but of course, like how would have I learned anything? They didn't mm-hmm. teach us anything. It was grown men slapping around kids, uh, you know, making us do the weirdest, bizarre punishments, like being hogtied and thrown in a room, you know, uh, being forced to sit in awkward positions, uh, you know, cleaning up, uh, you know, just miscellaneous tasks. Like, I don't know what they wanted us to learn there. I really don't. I think maybe these programs started out with good intention, you know, I'm assuming they got corrupted really quickly because mm-hmm. honestly, there's nothing I could take from that place and say that it was good for me. Absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. So we'll go ahead and pause our conversation right there. And this was actually the time in our conversation where we've been talking for just a little over an hour and decided to take a 15 minute break. So when we resume our conversation, Benjamin is going to talk about his uh, time that he spent in prison. And so this next section will take us um, through that time and we'll um, come to our next break, which is about the time when he gets ready to leave prison. Okay, so there was a month and a half or so in between coming back from CASA and going to prison. So what were your initial impressions of of prison? Um scary uh mm-hmm. i remember it um it's bigger in real life um in texas anyways uh prisons are built on farmland uh so they're spread out really really wide uh, and i was on maximum security and there's three layers of chain link fences and guard towers on a maximum security farm, essentially. Uh, And they are massive. These are like five, six story guard towers. Like they are ominous looking features. Um, And it's, it's interesting 
the guard towers because they actually have such a presence that a lot of inmates in prison who sort of like to identify with prison culture, they actually tattoo images of guard towers on them. And because they're just impressive structures, it's just a guard tower. But if you understand the mind of, you know, somebody who would glorify that particular culture, it's a, it's a status symbol. It's a huge building. Uh, and it represents that you've done time and, uh, they're very intimidating and the buildings themselves are also massive. And I remember, you know, going from, you know, in, in county to prison, uh, it's a very long bus ride because you take back roads. You don't take your standard highways. Um, most civilians will never see a prison transport unless you just live really close to a prison. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of them. You know, there's in Texas, there's over 115 prisons. Wow. Uh, and they're all over the place. Yeah. Uh, at, at any given moment, you know, there's over 100,000 inmates in the prison system at any given moment. Probably close to 150,000. In Texas? But, uh, in Texas. You know, and then California, I think, is even bigger than that. Um, but uh, prison was interesting. And I, I'd actually like to start the story in county jail, if that's okay. Sure, yeah. Uh, because it's relevant to what happens later in prison. Okay. Uh, you know, when, when I got out of Casa, uh, Casa by the Sea, and... You know, arrested, I went to county jail first. And as, you know, they process you and, you know, they go through the court dates and figure out what your sentencing is and stuff like that. Um, you know, me growing up where I grew up, I was um, into, you know, a lot of hip hop and rap culture and, you know, some rock and roll. And it was mixed. You know, I grew up in a mixed neighborhood. Um, it was not predominantly white it was it was actually really split down the middle between hispanics and, and, and you know, white people and then i would say you know there was a black community as well though they weren't as predominant as the whites and hispanics um but i did not grow up in a racially segregated environment however when you go to prison that's the first thing you notice is how incredibly racially segregated it is. And, you know, m me just being myself, the way that I talked and the way that I spoke and the way that I carried myself was, was what you would expect on a rap music video. And that doesn't fly well in prison for white kids. Uh, and luckily... I was around a couple couple older guys who sat me down and they were, you know, I always got called youngster everywhere I went. You know, youngster, what are you doing? Get over here. You know, don't be doing that. You know, this or that. Because I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know the rules. Uh, but I was always youngster anywhere I went. And, uh, I mean, I was literally the youngest person in county and in prison for at least a year in both places, like the youngest person. And a couple of uh, guys in the county uh, pretty much told me the ropes. It was like, hey, man, you, 
you might be able to get away with this here in the county where it's a little bit more friendly. But when you go to prison and, and you talk and you act like that, you know, there's just some people that are not going to take very kindly to, you know, a white boy talking that way. Black, black dudes ain't going to like it. The white dudes ain't going to like it. And the Mexicans don't give a shit about you. So, you know, you need to start acting who you are. And I had never really thought of it that way. You know, I was just being myself. I never thought of myself as being a particular color, you know, because, you know, my buddies talked and acted this. It was just normal. It was completely normal. So um, in there, I had to learn very quickly to change how I spoke, how I carried myself and who I preferred to hang out with. Because when I went to the county jail, the first people I started hanging out with were blacks and Mexicans, because most of the white people in there, you know, I felt that they were just like redneck trash, and I had nothing in common with these people. Uh, you know, I liked rap and hip hop, so I hung out with people who also liked rap and hip hop. But uh, these guys said you can't do that in prison, so they showed me the ropes, in other words, and. They said how things were going to be when I first arrived. They told me that certain events were going to take place, whether I liked it or not. And depending on how I reacted would dictate how I'd spend the rest of my sentence. And that weighed very heavily on me. They said, you get one chance. You get one chance for, uh, for this test. And depending on how you react, you're either going to get treated with respect or you're going to get treated without respect. And, you pick the wrong one, it's going to be very hard to ch change that. So when I was walking into prison, I had that in the back of my mind, you know, like, when is this test going to happen? Where is it going to happen? With whom is it going to happen with? I didn't know, you know, so from the very moment I was in there, I was on my guard, I was paranoid, uh, I was on edge constantly. And what I later realized was that being on edge, paranoid, and on your guard is exactly how you want to be all the time. Uh, because what I realized was that the moment you let your guard down, everybody can sense it, and that's when the bad things happen. So I remember being given a cell and going into my cell to put my stuff away. And the guys, the older guys in the county told me to don't even bother putting your stuff up because once you get to your unit and you get to that cell that you're supposed to live in, um, that's when it's more than likely going to happen. You know, as soon as you roll up, these guys aren't wasting any time. They're bored. They got nothing to do. And they want to figure out who you are pretty quickly before somebody else does. And, uh, I was just ready. So, you know, uh, I put down my stuff. I take my shirt off. I make sure my shoes are tied tight. Uh, you just certainly don't want to fight with one shoe on because that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's very awkward. Um, but uh, so I, I stayed there. And just, just imagine how absurd this scene is for a second. There's an 18-year-old child in a maximum security prison surrounded by grown men trying to look as tough as he can. That's kind of an absurd situation, right? 
This kid's not mm-hmm. tough at all. I mean, he might think he is, but in comparison to guys who've been doing hard time for 10 years, uh, he's a little wet behind the ears. But nevertheless, there I was, standing as tall as I could, mm-hmm. uh, trying to be intimidating <laughs> to a room full of guys who literally wrote the book on intimidation. Uh, so it's kind of funny and absurd to look back on that. But, you know, I did what I was told. Mm-hmm. And it's not about whether or not you are intimidating. It's about whether or not you have the guts to do it. You know, like... Uh, and that, that's what the test is all about. And the test is, is what they call in prison is a heart check. Uh, they want to check whether or not you have the heart of a fighter. That's essentially what that means. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, they're, if the gangs are going to include you into their group of trust, and uh, you have to prove that you have the heart of a warrior. They're not going to take care of somebody who can't take care of themselves, too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they also need to know that, you know, you can handle yourself in the event that you got to help somebody else. So they don't have room for people who are weak or people who won't defend themselves. So that's what the test is ultimately about. And it's, uh, it, I didn't see anybody approaching me. So I was like, okay, no, this must not be happening right now. I'm getting kind of tired of standing here, you know. So I remember I had turned around and uh, I started putting my things away and I let, I let my guard down uh, because uh, I left the cell door wide open. Apparently I could have shut it. I didn't know. Nobody told me anything. Uh, so I felt a presence behind me. And as soon as I turned around, there's, there's, uh, there was, let's see, one, two, there was four guys standing right behind me. Uh, and I know who they are. I still know their faces and their names, but I don't want to name them because I have no idea what these people are doing now. Uh, but they were there and, uh, it was one after the other and I had to fight them. Wow. Uh, one after the other. And the first two were pretty easy. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that I spent so much time in martial arts school. And to this day, I think I give a lot of credit to my training in martial arts because I know for a fact, without a doubt, it saved my ass on more than one occasion. And, you know, there's the, there's just those natural instinctive moves that just come back to you like, like a flash. And then I may not have practiced martial arts in a couple of years, but my body behaved uh, positively responsive. And so the first two were easy, uh, but I was, I was getting winded pretty quick. You know, I'm, I, I haven't been in the martial arts for some time. My primary activities for the past couple of years have been just doing stupid stuff and taking drugs. And, and you know, I was not in any kind of physical shape whatsoever. Mm-hmm. However, I had, I had the technique. So, uh, I got winded really fast. And then the third guy came in and he cut me down pretty good. And then the fourth guy who was the biggest out of all of them, uh, I mean, he didn't even have to do a whole lot, but he just kept hitting me in the stomach over and over again. And he'd hit me in the stomach 
And like, of course, like your natural reaction is to kind of curl slightly because it hurts, but you just do your best to keep standing up straight every time. And then throwing a punch like, and by that time I was so tired and so beat up. I was probably, I mean, I was throwing punches and a baby could have had more accuracy and, but nevertheless, like I kept getting back up. I kept trying. I would, I did not get up. And that's what the guys in the County jail told me not to do. They said, you know, this little heart check or this test, it's not designed for you to win. It's, it's designed for you to lose because they want to know what you're going to do when you're in a losing situation. Are you going to give up or are you going to give in? Are you going to plea for these people to stop? Are you going to start crying? Mm -hmm. What are you, what are you going to do? Uh, so they, they want you to know what you're going to do in a losing situation. Um, and they said, just whatever you do, don't ball up. That was what they kept saying. And, uh, they said, just don't ball up and you'll be okay. And so like, like in the middle of getting beat up, the only thought that I had going through my mind was just stand back up, just stand back up and, and just keep throwing punches, keep blocking, just do anything, but do not collapse to the floor. Um, and I didn't. And the, the, the hits stopped and, uh, he just sits there and he waits for me to collect myself. And like, before I even realized he had stopped, I'm, I'm still trying to throw these incredibly weak and pointless punches and he's just blocking them. Like they're nothing. Like this guy's not tired at all. And I finally realized that he's no longer hitting. And then, so I stop and I look at him and like, I'm messed up. I can barely see this guy. And he says, what's your name? And I said, my name is Ben. And he says, welcome to prison. <laughs> and then wow. I was like, yeah, like he says, well, welcome, uh, welcome to prison. So I'm like, uh, okay, like, I say this in my head, like I have no verbal response to that. Like, I mean, this guy just beat the shit out of him and his mm -hmm. buddies. So, uh, he asks me, do you need anything? And I thought it was the most absurd question I've ever been asked in my life. Like, dude, do I need anything? How about a Tylenol? <laughs> like, give me an aspirin, you asshole. But like, uh, so I said, no, man, I'm okay. Like, I got plenty of stuff right here. And he says, well, if you need anything, we'll be at the table. And then he introduces me to, to the guys that just kicked my ass. And he says, you stood up for yourself, and we respect that. You know, uh, he says, we're part of the wood pile, and you're part of it now, too. And I didn't have any idea what the hell that meant. But the wood pile, essentially, at least in Texas, I'm not sure about other states, it's basically a group of guys who are not officially affiliated with any gang who stick together to watch each other's back. And the term wood comes from some country stuff. And I don't even know about it. It's not part of my culture and I don't really care for it to be a part of my culture, but it's just basically some, you know, corn fred country boy talk, you know, where like, like wood is supposed to be tough or something. I have no idea how it, correlates to race but they mm -hmm. uh, they just call it that so anyhow um 
I, I then go eat with these guys. You know, I, I clean myself up, I put stuff away, and then, you know, they made food. And, I ha of course, I had to bring a little bit of stuff. And, and we ate together. And then that, that was my first day in prison. I got, I got shit kicked out of me by four guys who then later befriended me because I didn't give up. And uh, I realized very quickly that this environment uh, is going to require two things. One, I'm going to need to get myself in shape. And two, uh, I didn't see those guys coming. So how can I prevent that from happening in the future? being blindsided by a situation like that. Uh, so, yeah, that was my introduction to prison. That was my first day. Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So, at what point did you meet John? How old were you? Uh, John, I was 20. You were 20. Okay. Yeah, I was 20. So, did you, uh, did you meet him before or after your mom died? Before. Before. Okay. Can you walk us through that meeting John and. Um, I met John after probably one of the most life changing events happened mm -hmm. in prison, anyway. Uh, there was, there was a, uh, a snitch on our on our wing, and a, a wing is a section of building. And um, everybody knew uh, that, and, and everybody knew that there had been a snitch for some time because there would be the most random cell searches, mm -hmm. and for whatever reason, these cell searches had a really high level of accuracy when it came to finding stuff. Uh, you know, whether it was like tattoo needles or guns, or, you know, maybe somebody had made a weapon, you know, whatever. Uh, so we kind of had, you know, this is a little too coincidental. There's got to be somebody in this wing that's telling on somebody, but we couldn't figure out who it was because all the people we thought were suspects had already been vetted. And the people that we knew weren't. We just we didn't bother one of these guys. There's no way he's a snitch. There's absolutely no way. Uh, so, you know, long story short, there was a guard that comes into the wing one day, and it's during count time. So everybody's lined up by their doors. It's all nice and quiet. There's no ruckus going on uh, because periodically every day a guard has to come and count everybody to make sure nobody has the right idea to escape. So. Uh, right before he starts counting, he comes in, and I even remember the guard's name, I remember his face, I remember this exact moment. He comes in, and he's holding this huge chunk of paper documents, about this big, maybe about that big. And they're I-60 forms, and an I-60 form is the type of form that you use to write if you need something. And they're also synonymous with being a snitch because a lot of people will write an I-60 saying that, you know, they have a medical issue. Uh, but the medical building and the administration building are right next to each other. So uh, more often than not, somebody would write a slip to go see the doctor knowing on the way to go to the doctor, they'd be able to catch a high ranking officer to get their attention 
to do whatever it is that they actually want to do. So that's how inmates do things sort of under the radar. They, they put themselves close enough on paper to do something, and they sneak over to somewhere else and do it off the books. Um, so that, that's just one of the tactics that they use. Uh, and so, like, what we do is we just keep an eye on who gets I-60s, because you can go to the officer's hut and ask for I-60s. But inmate, inmates are very observant people. Like, if I see somebody go to the officer's side, I'm fixing to watch what he does until he's done doing it. Mm-hmm. No, like, what's this guy doing in the officer's side? But anyway, uh, Scar comes in, and he points. He says, there's your snitch right there, and points directly at this guy as a handful of documents and throws them. And he's on the second story tier right now because he came in uh, through the second story tier door or whatever. They're all connected, all the buildings. All the stories are connected through like a, a back administration walkway or whatever. Um, so there's this moment that's sort of stuck in time where all these slips of paper are just, you know, going down to the ground like this. And it's just absolute silence. And that's never a good thing in prison. Like when it's quiet, uh, something's about to happen. So everybody's looking at this guy. And uh, it's, you know, he gets dealt with. And if anybody wants to hear about details of it, they can just read that part of the story. But he gets dealt with. And it was really, really bad. Uh, he got beat up so badly that they had to call in a a care flight, emergency care flight helicopter to land in the wreck yard and have EMTs come get this guy, put him back on the helicopter and take off to the hospital. Wow. Uh, he, he was in critical condition, it appeared to be. Uh, because let me tell you, the state does not like to spend money on inmates. So for them to call in an emergency helicopter, it was pretty serious. So we never saw that guy after that. Uh, and then the next morning, uh, everybody that was in, involved with, you know, beating this guy up because, you know, he, he he upset a lot of people and a lot of people had claim. It's just prison politics, the way that things go. A lot of people had claim to get their justice on this guy. So uh, it, it's sort of a unique story. It's pretty interesting. Uh, but, you know, he, a lot of people had reason to beat this guy up so they did and uh everybody that was involved was was moved and relocated to other units like the whole thing was broken up uh the the gang intelligence officers came in and which are basically like prison uh like super police the 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 gis the gang intelligence officers those are the guys uh that have a license to kill like you do not piss off the gi this guy can ruin your life. Uh, and they came in and they just started grabbing people. You know, this guy, this guy, this guy, you guys are all gone. Let's go. And it was like a mass roundup. And for some reason, uh, I was left out of it. And I don't know if that was intentional. I don't know if that was accidental. Uh, I don't know. 
But anyways, I'm left there, and all my friends are gone. Everybody's gone. And uh, I'm hanging out with some of the guys that I play chess with, some of the older guys, old like ex-bikers. Uh, there's a lot of ex-biker gang guys like Hell's Angels, uh, the Banditos. And I, I had a couple uh, ex-biker friends, like older guys that I would play chess with. Uh, because every now and then I, I got tired of dealing with, you know, the guys my age and slightly older with their trauma. And, you know, I just didn't care for it. So I wanted to go play some chess and get away for a minute. So those were the only guys I had left uh, to associate with. So I found myself playing chess again quite often. And uh, I remember just getting bored of chess one day and I see this guy sitting at the table all at a table uh, all by himself and just surrounded with books. He had like, like eight or nine different books all over the table. And this guy, he's been on this wing for at least a year. I mean, I know who he is. I've never talked to him though. I've always thought he was a strange guy. Um, he stuck to himself. He didn't really bother anybody. He, He would just like come out of the cell every now and then with all his books and he would read them, he'd like flip through them and read stuff, and then he'd get up and start pacing around. Uh, he didn't bother anybody, uh, and so nobody really bothered him. We didn't pay him any attention. And uh, I decided, you know what, Like, I'm going to go talk to this guy and see what he's about, what's with all these books. It was curiosity, I was bored. Uh, so I remember going over to him and I said, hey, dude, uh, What's with all these books you're always bringing out? Like, you just bring this, like, completely random assortment of books, and I see you flip through them. What, like, what is all this stuff? And so uh, we just start talking, you know, and, and you know, he he asked me, you know, have you ever heard of, you know, philosophy? And I was like, not really. I mean, I know I know what the word means, but I don't understand it. I've never looked into it. Um and he just like gave me a brief intro of some of the books that he had. And I was like, well, that's cool. <clears throat> you know, we started talking and I, I was like, so like, what's your name? Like, you know, how long have you been here? Like, things of that nature. And, and then of course, like we talked about recent events, like, like, man, did you see what happened to, to that guy? You know, man, that was crazy. You know, like never seen anything like that in my life. And so I don't know what spurred my outburst, but I just started like pouring my life story to this guy. And I think it was just out of frustration. Uh, it's out of confusion. Uh, I, I was emotionally drained, you know, like, like a child, like, like dealing with an alcoholic mother, dad who worked all the time, you know, my drug era age, you know, doing a bunch of nefarious stuff, you know, feeling like the world doesn't give a crap. So therefore I'm not going to give a crap about it and I'm just going to do whatever I want. Uh, then like, then to just put all the unfairness, you know, on top of the, you know, on top of everything being sent to like the most awful behavior modification school. Like, what was that all about? I come out, I'm even more angry at the world. You know, everywhere I look, I am being, I felt like 
you know, again, these are my subjective feelings, and I'm sure people closest to me at the time could certainly say it was something else. They're more than uh, free to do that. However, my feelings about it was I was absolutely just surrounded by crap, surrounded by negativity, uh, surrounded by authority figures that I could not trust. Uh, so... I was just upset at life, and I and I let him know it. And uh, his name's John, by the way. So uh, I I just like unloaded all of my pressure on him, and he just sat there and listened the whole time. And you know he was he had just got done telling me what philosophy is, and philosophy is about you know uh, like like a purpose and having a meaning in life. And, and, you know, maybe it was his definition of philosophy that got me so upset because I thought purpose and meaning of life was, was a stupid concept. There's no purpose to my life. This life has no meaning. Like, what the hell purpose do I have? Like, grew up in this family, uh, you know, went to some awful freaking school. Like, where's the purpose in that? Like, what am I, what's my takeaway? You know, what do I get out of this? I didn't ask for any of this, and I just unloaded on him. And uh, I was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with myself. Like, what is this life for? You tell me. Like, you read all these philosophy books. You got all the answers. You tell me what this is supposed to be for, because so far, nobody's told me anything that's worth listening to. It's all a bunch of garbage. I was, I was furious. I was upset. And uh, I, I had just seen a guy nearly get beat to literal death. You know, I've never seen anything like that in my life. So what have I got to look forward to, you know? And uh, he, he just slides me a book, you know? It's a very uh, small book. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a book written by Alan Watts uh, called Become What You Are. And the title was... It was interesting to me because it's it it asks it says become what you are. Well, I don't like what I am. How am I supposed to become what I am if I don't like what I am? And then you know, I read the back of it and it talked about you know in the summary how we already have the things within us that we need. And so we need to stop worrying about being something we're not because that's just going to cause us even more conflict. And I was on board with that. You know, I'll do anything to avoid conflict right now. I do not want more conflict in my life. So this book basically says, you don't have to change anything about yourself. You're perfect the way you are. Let me show you. And so that was the book that started my entire transformation. And uh, like, I finished that book and I literally went on a, a like a two-year spiritual journey where I just devoured books and I I felt like like this is the best thing I've ever experienced in my life um, I'm trying not to get emotional about it but it was just so profound after a whole lifetime of, of shit um, I, I needed to meet him. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 
Um, and you said that you, so you would read books and then you would go and you would talk to him about it and kind of discuss it. And, um, yeah, yeah, he was, he was a teacher and, mm -hmm. uh, he was the only guy that got away with calling me a dumbass <laughs> <laughs> because like if anybody else called me a dumbass in there, like we were about to have an issue, mm -hmm. but I looked up to him, you know, and I respected him and, uh, you know, sometimes I would get frustrated and I would go, John, I don't understand this. Like, what does this mean? Like, it says this and this and this, but I just don't freaking get it. Yeah. It's like, well, you're, you're quit being a dumbass. You're looking at it the wrong way. <laughs> and so he was the only person uh, that I, I really started to look up to in a long time who I felt like was giving me valuable information. Mm -hmm. And he was, he was paying attention to my concerns. He wasn't trying to write them off as teenage problematic angst. He wasn't trying to write me off as an annoying child. And he wasn't trying to write me off as, you know, oh great, he's causing me, you know, more stress one way or another. You know, he, I, I, I don't even know what his motive was. I don't know that he even had a motive. Um, I don't think, I don't think he did. I think he just wanted to have somebody to talk to and, and somebody to listen because, you know, the books that he was showing me had the same effect on him. Right. So, he, I mean, he was just paying it forward. Mm -hmm. And so he did like anytime I was confused about something, uh, he would help me understand it. Mm -hmm. So he, you know, for those two years that I was reading, uh, he was, he was, a, he was a great teacher. Mm -hmm. He really was. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he actually was able to go home before me. So there was about a year where I was kind of on my own, but, you know, luckily by that time, because, uh, I had spent so much time with him in reading so quickly, I read all of his books faster than he could hand them out. You know, it got to the point where, uh, I read literally every book in the philosophy section in the library. <laughs> wow. Like I read all of them. Mm -hmm. Like people say, man, uh, how many books have you read? All of them, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, you know, like yeah. quite a bit and, wow. uh, just a lot of stuff. And I, I read everything. I was not discriminate. I read things on Christianity. I, I read things on what Christians would consider Satanistic. Uh, you know, I read everything from one side of the, spiritual spectrum to the other. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know everything. I wanted to get as much insight and knowledge about this stuff as I could. And, uh, I was not going to discriminate. And what I realized was I had a natural inclination toward reading things, uh, that were Eastern in their thought. And also, uh, I, I really got into, uh, Native American and even, Prehistory uh, spiritual practices and basically animism. I'm not sure if you're familiar with animism. No. But it's animism is uh, probably the earliest form of spirituality there is. It's mm -hmm. it's it's, uh, it's it's the root of shamanism. I'll just say that. I don't okay. really want to get really yeah. into it. But it's the root of shamanism. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I just liked them because they made sense to me. I was mm -hmm. finally getting answers um, from questions that I had 
and couldn't find answers anywhere else. Mm -hmm. uh, through these mediums, the Eastern philosophy, the spirituality of, you know, shamanic, sh uh, shamanic practices, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, now, granted, I don't identify as these religions, but I, I definitely take a page or two, if not the entire book, from that particular train of thought. Mm -hmm. um, because it just makes sense. I, I realized that, you know, at that moment, there were certain uh, relig religious teachings that just didn't, they just didn't make sense to me. You know, uh, I have a huge problem with authority because of my upbringing. So naturally, I wasn't into the monotheistic stuff. You know, here's an authority figure who tells you this and that. And anytime you ask the guy why, his only response is because I said so. Like, that was mm -hmm. the last thing I wanted to hear. Right, so, uh, right. And that that works for some people and more power to them. I'm not, um, I'm, I'm not trying to devalue any system here. I'm mm -hmm. just simply saying that I finally found what works for me. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that is key to uh, the whole problem of people being lost is that we're force feeding people answers that may not work for them. And when we sit there and tell people that, well, sorry, this is the answer. It's the only answer. Then they're stuck in a continual cycle of conflict. Mm -hmm. They're telling you that it's not working. And then you're telling them, well, sorry, it's the only thing. And then you try to force feed even more of it. Mm -hmm. like, all that's doing is perpetuating a negative cycle. So, so when you, when you read those books, um, did you think, is that when you kind of had the first inclination of writing a book or did that come later? No, I, I never thought of writing a book, uh, until way after I got out. Okay. Okay. So we'll talk about that when we get to that point, but, um, do you feel comfortable talking about um, your mom? Sure. Okay. Um, my, I knew my mom had been an alcoholic her whole life. Mm -hmm. uh, and she had been in and out of hospitals at least three times that I remember ever since I was eight until, you know, uh, middle school. Uh, you know, some of my earliest memories I remember. I remember one night in particular, I think it, I think it was third grade. I spent an entire night in the waiting room of a hospital because she had just poisoned herself to the point where she needed hospitalization and it was an emergency. Mm -hmm. So on a school night, I spent an entire night in the hospital and I specifically remember staying awake all night watching reruns of the Jeffersons. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, uh, the show, the Jeffersons has kind of a, an interesting connection to my past as far as that's concerned. Cause anytime I see a show, I relay it. Like I do that with all sorts of stuff. I have these weird connections, but anyways, uh, she was hospitalized. So in 2007 on my birthday month, July, uh, I was turning 21. They had just uh, came to see me for the last time. And my mom was very skinny, very skinny. And I kind of knew in the back of my head something was wrong. And But we didn't talk about it. You know, we just tried to have a good visit. And uh, I didn't know at the time, but it was the, it was the last time I'd ever see my mom. Uh, and 
that wasn't easy. And about a month later, uh, she confessed to me in a letter that she was sick and she probably wasn't going to make it this time. And she wanted me to know that, you know, my dad has been doing his best to take care of her and help her have a good time. And they went on two or three vacations in that last year together to really try to throw in a lot of good memories. And I was sent pictures for that. And, you know, I wrote letters and stuff. Um, and she wrote me every week. We, we wrote to each other a letter at least once a week. I Sometimes I got two letters in a single week. And that was for five years straight. We were writing constant letters to each other. Um, and, you know, she sent me books. I would ask, like, I, I would get a newspaper and uh, I, w I would see all these books. And I always went to, like, the most far out spiritual ones, like alternative science and just the weird stuff. And I wanted to read all that. You know, I wasn't. When I was in county jail, I was reading the normal stuff. I was reading John Grisham and, you know, fiction books. And I literally read every single John Grisham book that was out up to that date. And, you know, all the Stephen Kings. And I, I was kind of over that. So I, I was just really into knowledge at this point. I, I just wanted to read everything I could. So we kept in touch with that. And, you know, she sends me that letter where she states that she's getting sick. And I just broke down in my cell and I just like, I, I broke down, you know, my mom's dying and I'm probably not ever going to see her again. Uh, and I'm stuck here in prison and granted, uh, by this time, uh, my mentality had totally shifted, like reading these books transformed my thinking process patterns completely 180. I, I may have still been in prison, but I was nowhere near the same guy that walked in the building. It was not that same guy anymore. These books literally changed my life. And I was upset because she would never get to see who I am now. You know, I mean, she, she saw it through the letters and she saw it in my writing. Um, but she would never see it in real life. And that was very upsetting for me. And uh, I stopped getting letters without warning. And for several weeks, I think it was about two weeks, two or three weeks, I stopped getting letters. And uh, because of the letters she had wrote me earlier that year, I, I knew like, maybe this is it, maybe she's gone. So I literally started asking my pals who got the Dallas morning news, if I could read the newspaper when they were done, because I wanted to look in the obituary section and see if I could find my mother. So for two or three weeks, I was reading the newspaper just to find uh, a death notice of my mother. And I never found one, uh, but I did get called to the administration building um, on July, or I'm sorry, it was December 3rd. And uh, I walked down there, and it was about 6 p.m. 
And prison is a very routine place. You don't get called down to the administration building at 6 p.m. You, you just don't. So I knew that because of this was so out of ordinary, because of the letter my mom had wrote me previously, because uh, I had not heard from her in so long, I just knew that this was a, hey, we just want to let you know that your mom passed. I just knew it. Uh, There's no doubt in my mind. And it turns out that's exactly what that was. And it was a sergeant who told me, I, I walk into the administration building, I go up to their little desk, and they're asking me to sign this piece of paper uh, stating that, um, yes, they did indeed tell me that they told me that, that my mom passed away. So it was like a death notice, and uh, it, it was just a checks and balances thing, I guess. Uh, and it was a sergeant that was like, hey, you know, we just got a phone call from your father. Uh, he wanted us to tell you that your mother's passed away. And that was it. Uh, and then they said, you know, we, you know, the best we can offer you is a couple nights in solitary confinement, if you would like that. And again, this is another example where people who are dealing with individuals who need psychological care have no idea or have any concept about proper, uh, you know, psychological care. You know, these are minimum wage paid security guards. And, you know, you're going to offer somebody who's, you know, mother just <clears throat> died solitary confinement as a way to cope. Like, that's the last thing somebody needs. You know, anybody who's read Psychology 101 knows that. And, I don't know, it, it's kind of a side rant, but it just goes to show, like, how, how, how ignorant, you know, these places are. These are supposed to be places of rehabilitation. What should have happened was been maybe a group discussion, you know, maybe, hey, do you want to talk to a doctor? We have a psychologist over here. Do you want to talk to them? You know, do you want to be with your friends? Do you want some extra rec yard time? You know, maybe you can get some of your buddies and y'all can walk around the rec yard for a few laps. That's what rehabilitation is. Not, hey, do you want to go sit in a dark room for two days that's about as big as a closet? That's wow. not rehabilitation. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's just, it's just some, it's just more crap. Uh, I have a huge problem with the way things are. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's what happened. And uh, I remember, you know, just saying, no, thanks, I'll be okay. And uh, they're like, are you sure, man? And I was like, yeah, and I was just stone-faced. You know, I, I was just blocking all emotion. Um, and it's, I feel kind of messed up to say this, but I had already cried for her death when she wrote me that letter a month ago. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I already got that out. So just hearing the news about it, uh, it it wasn't as bad, I think. Mm -hmm. now, it was still sh it was still shocking because like it was a reality drop. You know, hey, this is reality now. It's not just it's not just some thing that's going to happen in the future. Like it, it's now. It just happened. Mm -hmm. uh, but I remember walking back to the to the wing, just like in complete uh, shock. You know, just non emotional. And I uh, go back to the wing, and I tell my buddies, and, you know, they're trying to console me and this and that. You know, uh, 
I, I was just blocked off of emotion. I was just completely blocked off. I was like, uh, I was like a machine, I guess. Just, I did not want to feel emotion, so I just blocked it out. Was, and, uh, that, was John still there at that point, or had he already left? Um, I want to say he was there. Okay. Um, let's see, 2009, yeah, I want to say he was. Oh, okay. Um, That's okay, I was just wondering if he, yeah. if he was there to I, offer any yeah, I, wisdom or anything. Uh, not specifically, no. Yeah. Not that I can remember. Uh, I do know that some of the books he suggested did talk about, you know, death and uh-huh. afterlife and things of that nature. So, mm-hmm. you know, by this time also, because I had read so many books so quickly, mm-hmm. um, my uh, degree in which I was a student to him was uh, not as high as it was when I first started. I mean... Because when you're you're in prison, you got nothing to do. Like I, I literally spent two years reading just book after book after book after book. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, it's it's possible and and it's possible that I read eight years worth of books in two years. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, yeah. And that's just so. No, I I don't I don't I didn't have to ask for advice on that. Right. Um, yeah. Because by then I had already developed my own sense of, of things. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, talk about the birds. Not, uh, not not the birds that are tripping right, right. near me, but the birds no. that you saw. <laughs> they just reminded um, me. <laughs> that's that's actually really funny because that's almost uh, yeah that's really that's actually really strange because my whole thing about the birds is the birds represented as as a sign. You know, to my mom, because uh, my, my mom, uh, I always thought of her as a free spirit, you know, wild, chaotic. She lived her life according to, you know, whatever she felt like doing, whether it was destroying herself or whether it was having a good time in another way. You know, it's just she was uh, she was like that. Uh, I So in a, in a sense, I think she uh, or birds rather certain parallels and symbology there. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that we're at this particular part of the story, right? As birds are talking on your see, that's the type of stuff that I'm talking about. Yeah. Well, most people, they wouldn't find that profound. They would just think it's, Oh, it's just funny. Mm-hmm. You know, Oh, it's a funny coincidence, but is it really, is it really just a coincidence? Like those are the things that I wanted to question. Mm-hmm. Like people say kind of half-heartedly things happen for a reason or people say half-heartedly that, you know, uh, they believe in some form of higher power. But when, when small coincidences like this happen, they're just laughed off. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Yeah. What, why is it that we're willing to put faith in the most far out fantasies Yet when it's a small correlation between events like this, we just laugh it off as a dumb coincidence based uh, in, a, in a Newtonian physics mm-hmm. governed world. Mm-hmm. Talk uh, about how you saw the birds after, like like you had described in your book. 
Hmm. Well, they just started popping up all over the place, you know, mm-hmm. like just the day after she died, I remember coming out of the chow hall and just all of a sudden there's like just birds everywhere and they're flying very close to me. And uh, I was not walking with a large group of people. I, I don't feed birds. I, I don't carry food out and feed them. Uh, we're not allowed to do that. So, you know, they weren't there for any reason to get food anyhow, because we don't, we don't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just weird. You know, like I had been in the same cell for three years and all of a sudden these birds want to build a nest right in my window. Just like, okay, <laughs> like, how are you guys doing? Building a nest, that's cool. I couldn't open my window anymore, and it was hot in the summer. But, I mean, there were birds there, and that was cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was sort of comforting. And uh, also, about the same time, I was reading two other books that were also up there, I'd say, in my, in the, in my top five. Um, and... One of them was written by a man named Robert Wolf, uh, and that one was called Original Wisdom, uh, subtitled An Ancient Way of Knowing. And the other book was written by a guy, a guy named Lyle Watson, and that title was called Gifts of Unknown Things. And both of them were written by anthropologists uh, who spent their time amongst highly segregated and governmentally protected uh, ancient tribal groups within the jungle. Uh, and, you know, through whatever reason, these guys were allowed to live with these ancient tribes and become a part of their culture. And some of the stuff that they observed and that they talked about and some of the things that they learned from these cultures, especially the original wisdom book. So the, the stories that he tells are just incredible. Like these people um, are so innately connected to nature. Uh, they know things without having seen them. And it's just very, it's very difficult to understand or explain to somebody who's not really into like some pretty far out, uh, existential stuff. Uh, but to me, like, because I had read all these things and it all started to make sense, like, a lot of people out there believe that, you know, consciousness is this sort of universal thing. It's not, it's not um, defined and uh, limited by an individual body, but consciousness is everywhere at all times, and that people are gravitational focal points of consciousness, we don't control all of it, right? So if you imagine uh, our beings as some sort of gravitational focal point where like more consciousness, if you will, is collected, where we can have, you know, higher levels of thinking, we can build things, you know, we can do all the things that humans can do. Uh, and it's, it's a focused, concentrated amount of consciousness. But does that mean that we're completely... separate from something else. And, you know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of things out there that suggest that, you know, we are connected. There's a lot of, a lot of different things, but anyhow, uh, 
reading these books, seeing those birds appear at the same time my mother having passed away, and, you know, me, I, like, I already symbolized birds and my mom together long before she passed away. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't, oh, my mom passed away, now she's a bird. Like, I had always thought of her that way. Mm-hmm. She's always been a free spirit. And it's just, uh, it's just interesting that it happens to be birds that start showing up everywhere mm-hmm. after she passed. Yeah. And, you know, you, we've all heard the anecdotal stories around the world, like twins can feel when their um, identical twin sibling is in pain or a mother can sense when their child is in danger. There's just these, these unexplainable things. Uh, and, you know, I find them to be probably more relevant than the next person. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. you know, it was, it was those things that helped me get through that. So, mm-hmm. And that's what developed probably the deepest layer of my spirituality um, is concepts like those, like mm-hmm. concepts like we are all ultimately connected you know uh we're not all out here just a bunch of accidental uh electrons and neutrons bumping around each other you know uh i i firmly believe that there's a greater power at play i don't i don't necessarily give it a name because the moment that i give it a name it's excluding somebody else who doesn't understand that name they might understand the concept and the power in which I'm speaking, but they won't recognize the name that they use. Mm-hmm. So I, I try not to identify things with specific terms. I just simply say that there's something out there, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and okay. yeah, so that that's okay. that's what helped me get through that was just that that sense of comfort, mm-hmm. you know, that everything is going to be okay and. Uh, my mom does make appearances every now and then, just as she just did. And we mm-hmm. just so happened to be talking about her, mm-hmm. uh, birds start chirping. So, yeah. I mean, people can, people can call me weird for that if they want. That's totally fine. That's, that's their prerogative, but I think it means something. Yeah. So we'll go ahead and pause the conversation right there. And that's another time when we took a, a break after speaking for another hour. Our next section is the last section, and that's um, Benjamin's integration back into civilian world. And this next part will take us to the end of the episode. So is there anything else that you wanted to say about your time in prison before we talk about the transition back into civilian world? I wanna I wanna say that I needed that. You know, um, a lot of people I've ran into in the past and even recently who are, you know, still not doing good things for themselves. Uh, for example, I had a uh, an old friend hit me up the other day, and he's afraid that he might be going to jail soon. He's terrified. He wants to know what he should do to get out of it. And uh, he did not like my advice. (laughs) I told him that, oh, he probably needs it, you know? Uh, Because by now, like, see, when, when, when I went to jail, I was an 18 year old kid. I don't think I was old enough to really 
completely understand the consequences of my actions. I knew the short-term consequences, sure, but I didn't have a comprehension of the long-term. I didn't, um, I didn't have a foundation to go off of. I didn't have any kind of guidance or anything whatsoever. You know, I'm 32 now, and so a lot of my friends are in the same age. Uh, and it's like, you know, dude, if, if you're still screwing up when you're 30 and when you're in your late 20s, like, you, I mean, you're an adult, man. You know, like, you probably need a place and sit your ass down for a second. You know, it might be good for you. You know, and, that, and that's the advice I gave him. You know, like, you may need to sit down and do what I did and just, like, spend your time reading books, man. You know, stick to yourself, do some workouts, get healthy, read some books. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was the advice I gave. So, you know, I needed that. Um, I, I wouldn't have been able to, you know, do anything that I'm doing today would not have happened without, you know, going there, meeting John, you know, and, and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, it was, it was necessary, you know, and, and again, like, you know, uh, hero's journey, you know, um, it's, it's all, it's all useful everything everything that you go through is useful did you learn about the hero's journey in prison or was that after that was after oh okay. uh, uh, so when i got out uh it was really hard for me to find work couldn't find a job anywhere uh and a buddy of mine you know i had been fit i was trying to get into the military uh and that didn't really pan out because uh, you have because a record of my back. Oh, okay. Yeah, because of my background. and mm-hmm. I, I, I thought it would be a good idea uh, because, you know, I, I'm already coming from a place where I'm used to structure and strict routine. So I felt, you know, joining the military uh, would be a good thing for me. I felt like I could really fit in. Mm-hmm. And it would also serve a purpose to me is, like, maybe I can reclaim my honor. Maybe I can um, sort of erase my past and put it behind me maybe i could get a fresh start because in my mind uh you know i did my time i did my whole sentence so i felt you know i was 23 when i was released you know from the ages of 17 to 23 i was locked up in one way or another uh and when i was in around the ages of of 21 is when I started getting into uh, uh, really, really deep into philosophy. I had my beginning when I was 20, and 21 was when I felt like I was peaking in my journey, and 22, I felt pretty solid, 23, you know. So by the time I was 23, I was not the same guy anymore. You know, my whole entire mentality and worldview has been shifted. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that that is truly what makes a person is their conscious state of mind. That's what makes somebody who they are. Mm -hmm. So if the brain can adapt and change and personalities can change, then I did my time and I I felt like maybe the world would give me a fresh start. Mm -hmm. That wasn't the case. I learned very quickly that the world uh, actually thought even much less of me than it did before. So... uh, I got into fitness training. It seemed to be, you know, a good idea at the time. I was 
working in an ice rink, it made sense. I was already surrounded by athletes. Uh, so I, you know, again, it's like being in the right place at the right time. Uh, was it meant to be? Maybe. Uh, you know, again, it's like it depends on how you want to see things. Uh, and then later on, when I was watching some fitness videos on YouTube, because I like to watch these YouTube fitness videos for entertainment, there's motivation, there's like educational stuff. But I ran across a guy uh, named Elliot Hulse who made a video, and he's very popular, by the way. So if anybody listening or watching is into, you know, getting in shape or, you know, learning or whatever, I suggest checking Elliot Hulse out on YouTube, uh, some of his earlier stuff. Uh, he did a video called, uh, you know, Hero's Journey. It was just titled Hero's Journey. Uh, and it sounded interesting. So I clicked on it and he himself has read Joseph Campbell and he kind of outlined it for me and this and that. Uh, and it was very profound, you know? Uh, and again, you know, it was like a blueprint and everything started to make sense. And like, and then I started diving deeper into the hero's journey and this and that. And like, it almost seems like my life has just, it, it almost like perfectly parallels the hero's journey. Yeah. And it, 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 it does like, like growing up, like ordinary world is rough, you know, like, and of course, I'm, I'm sure anybody could say the same thing about themselves because that's what the hero's journey is for. That's that's where its genius lies, is that you can imply it to almost any situation. But I felt like with mine, I was like, wow, man, like, like what if I were to like build some sort of a platform and do something with my story, you know? And my story could have a lot of impact on a lot of people. And I think, you know, we're at a point in time where you know, bullying and, you know, teen suicide is on the rise. Uh, Health-related problems are on the rise. Like, if, if there's ever a time that I need to get out there and tell this story, it's literally right now. You know, there couldn't be a better time. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that motivated me even further mm -hmm. to, to keep doing what it was that I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. uh, but because I couldn't get a job anywhere... Uh, I realized very quickly that I was either going to do this on my own or I was going to be subject to minimum wage jobs my whole life. Uh, matter of fact, one of the first jobs I applied for when I got home uh, was to be a trash collector. And I got turned down to be a trash collector because of my felonies. Wow. So that's the type of society that we live in. Mm -hmm. where on paper, I look like a horrible person. But they don't even bother to interview me. You know, and I guess I can understand that, but they don't know me. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know. So I am still very angry at society, very angry. I have a huge chip on my shoulder about the way things are right now. And part of that is what fuels me. Um, and I, I have... I have anger problems, you know, I deal, I deal daily with rejection 
and stress. Every time I step outside, I feel society's rejection all over. And it's because I can't get a job. It's because it costs more for me to get an education. Uh, my credit score is permanently affected because of my record, regardless of whether or not I have debt. My criminal record affects my debt. I can't rent an apartment. I can't rent a house. I got to get people to do this for me and live in places illegally. That's how I survive. So even though I've been through various levels of success over the years, I've never been able to own anything. You know, at the height of my business, when I was doing my training and, and you know, I, w I was making good money. I was making a lot of money, you know, charging anywhere from 50 to $80 an hour for my work. Uh, I even had a client's mother argue with me. She was upset that I made more money than her. So I have a master's degree in holistic nutrition and you charge more than I do. Well, sorry, it's not my fault. But, you know, you have a house, you have a good credit score, you have an actual education, you know, be thankful for that because I can't get any of those things. Uh, in spite of all the money I make, uh, I can't spend it because I cannot buy anything. I'm not allowed. No. And so I have a huge problem with society. Uh, it's not fair mm -hmm. at all. And it needs to be changed. So, you know, that, that's another argument. But anyways, so my thing is fitness. In prison, I discovered that working out was a huge release for me. And it allowed me to focus my energy on something positive. So when I was, you know, anxious from reading books all day, I'd go work out, get rid of that physical energy. So I found outlets to take care of my needs. And, you know, when, when I came out of prison... My first goal was to just simply find work. And then I discovered the hero's journey. Uh, and then I discovered a deeper purpose, you know. Um, and I kind of had a hint of that in prison, you know, like working out. Uh, this is what I'm going to do. You know, this is in prison. My purpose was to work out and read books every day. That's how that was my purpose in life. That was my job during that particular time of my life. Like your job is to get up, make sure you eat, make sure you stay out of trouble, make sure you go to the rec yard every day, you know, read your books. That was my job. And that's what I did every single day. Uh, but when you, when you get out, you know, you you're completely on your own. And even though that I spent my time and I did my time, uh, you know, the world doesn't care, it just doesn't. And the world doesn't care me about me in the same way that a lot of people don't care about these teenagers that are going through a hard time. So the, the, the cycle perpetuates itself. And I, my goal is to stop that cycle because if nobody does, uh, it's just going to keep going. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's, that's what I intend to do. When did you decide that you wanted to start, that you wanted to write a book? Um, last year. Last year. And people have been telling me for a long time that I needed to write a book. And 
I never really paid much attention to it. I never really took it seriously. And everybody I met, you know, especially when I first got out of prison, a buddy of mine even had a graduation party for his college. You know, he graduated, this dude graduated college and invited me to his party. And it was just a couple of months after I got out of prison. Now, granted, I went to elementary school and middle school with a lot of these people. And I became like part of the main attraction at his party. Yeah. And it's all, everybody was like, dude, where have you been? Like you just disappeared one day and nobody saw you anymore. Like that's, that, that was like, it was a shock. Like I just showed up after six years of being gone. Yeah. And, uh, everybody wanted to know what my story was. And to be honest with you, I got really tired of telling it after a while. You know, it's like, uh, well, this happened, this happened, I went to prison, I started working out, you know, now I, now I do fitness training. You know, I just, I got tired of telling it. Um, but what really made me want to write it, uh, you know, again, it goes back to me, you know, having to run my own business, be an entrepreneur. And business is tough. You know, uh, my gym, for example, Results Fitness went out of business. Uh, the man who owned the gym... Uh, he would not listen to uh, me and my coworkers' requests to keep it open. Like, it was just me and my buddy, Mike, running the gym. And, you know, we were there every day. We saw the customers. We did the marketing. Uh, we went out and talked to, you know, city council. We went out and talked to local police station. You know, we went looking for clients. Like, it was our gym. You know, we ran the computer systems. We called maintenance when we needed stuff. The guy that owned it, I mean, he just he just came in once a month to collect his money, and then he was gone. And eventually, another gym opened up down the street, uh, Texas Family Fitness. And within eight months, they put us out of business. I mean, we were bleeding dry for eight months, and then we finally had to close the doors. And... At the time, I was I was dating somebody, and it put a lot of stress on that relationship because I was providing a pretty nice financial chunk of that household, and uh, you know because of my situation, I can't rent on my own. If I'm going to live somewhere, I have to live under somebody else's name in secret, because even if I go on the lease with somebody, they will get rejected just because I'm on the paper even though that they might be the main person on paper paying for it or, you know, what happened. So uh, in order for me to be out there on my own as a felon, I have to not be on paper pretty much anywhere I go. So it's all in secret. Uh, long story short, me losing my job caused me a lot of problems. I was dealing with a lot of problems at home. And uh, it, it, you know, it was just... My whole life has felt like one pile of crap after another. You know, then when I get out of prison, it's just one rejection note after rejection note after rejection note. And I started to get <clears throat> disenfranchised. My ideals of being gung-ho about being free and finally out, I'm going to do great for myself, uh, they got chipped away. And I, I found myself into a very deep and dark depression. Uh, and I had a relapse for the first time in 13 years. And this is not in my book, by the way. 
Um, and it, it was bad. You know, there was a period I, I was just in a dark spot. I gave up, you know, because in my mind, I was like, you know what? I, I have given it my best shot. I, when I was younger, you know, and, and, and sometimes people defend me and they're like, well, you had a shitty upbringing. Anybody would have been like that. Or you went through these things. Of course, it's no big deal. Like, it's not your fault. But then there's, you know, there's the other side of the spectrum where it's always the people who are, you know, uh, very strict conservative types who are like, well, you should have known better and you should have done this and this and you should have done that. And so, like, you could argue either side. You know, I'm not going to sit there and debate with these people because it's not going to go anywhere. Um, they weren't in my shoes. They didn't, they, they just weren't there. So mm -hmm. I'm not going to waste my time with them. Um, and, and people are free to tell whatever narrative they want to tell themselves to make themselves feel better. Uh, but things happen. Like I went through some pretty terrible stuff and it's undeniable. I'm not making it up. There's a record of this stuff. Um, I, and I was just upset. You know, I was I was very upset. I was like, you know what? Uh, again, I went back into that mentality that, man, life isn't for me. You know, society is not fair. Authority, uh, it just sucks. So I, I'm just going to lay back and I'm going to destroy myself because no matter how hard I work, um, it, it's going to fall apart anyway. You know, and, and before I was at Results Fitness to give you even more context. Um, the first job I got officially was an ice rink where I started fitness training to begin with. I started doing really well at the ice rink. Well, the ice rink went out of business. So I got rejected by the army straight out of prison. My first job in fitness training area where I started at went out of business. Then the results fitness gym also went out of business. I start to get a little depressed. I try to find other areas of work doing odd jobs, you know, trying to make it in the corporate world. I'm a, I'm a smart guy. Uh, I'm not, I'm, I'm self-motivated. I'm very smart. I, I don't, I'm, I don't find fulfillment in doing minimum wage jobs, but I'm forced into doing them because I have this crazy record and I don't have a real education. You know, although I can speak as if I have one, I don't actually have one. So I can't get a good job. Uh, and and I, I was just upset at life. I did not want to work minimum wage. I tried to work as a fitness trainer for corporate gyms uh, because it results fitness. I ran my own show. It was my business inside the facility. Um, and working for a corporate gym is a bad idea. I did not like it. Uh, I didn't like having a boss telling me how to run myself or how to do sales or any of that. I, I can do all this completely on my own. I've proven it. And, you know, it, it was just bad. So um, I had to move back in. Uh, I lived on the street for a little while, actually, uh, a very brief time. And that's when I was at my relapse stage. Uh, and... I tried to get back in touch with family and they would not hear it. They didn't want to hear it. Uh, my dad's attitude is like, you made your bed, you got to sleep in it. Uh, he actually said those words. Uh, and he has like this tough love approach. And you can defend that 
or you can attack it. I've heard both sides of the story. Some people attack the crap out of it. Some people defend it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, me personally, uh, I wish he would allow me a little bit more time to create a foundation for myself because, you know, I did, I felt like I never really had much of a foundation to begin with when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. You know, I was, I mean, again, this could turn into a big argument and I don't want it to be that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and um, so it's, it's difficult for me to say one thing or the other. The only mm -hmm. thing I know is that it was me revisiting the hero's journey. See, the, the first time when I saw the hero's journey by Elliot Hulse, it was really cool and it was really eye opening. but I didn't feel the spark that I felt in that moment. You know, and sometimes, you know, in, within the hero's journey, it could have been uh, in the it, it could have been, you know, me crossing that death threshold that he talks about mm -hmm. towards the end. Right. Towards the end, you go through trials and tribulations mm -hmm. and you fight your biggest monster. And sometimes you die doing <clears throat> doing that. You might defeat the monster, but it, it, it defeats you also. Mm -hmm. It's the ultimate sacrifice. Are you willing to finally defeat your monster and, and know that it could defeat you also? And I felt like perhaps that's where I was. And knowing at that moment in my life um, and, and revisiting the hero's journey, that was the moment when I realized I've actually done the entire circle because I made it through the relapse. I mm -hmm. shook it off, mm -hmm. you know. Um, because I, I, I thought to myself, I was like, what the hell am I doing? Like, this is not me. Like, I'm a fitness fanatic. Like, I, I don't even like to eat, you know, foods with preservatives. Why am I doing this? Mm -hmm. You know, so, uh, I felt like I went over that, that, uh, the abyss of death, if you will. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and it's interesting, uh, even in, uh, Kabbalistic lore, which is an esoteric Christian religion, if you will. Um, it even talks in there a little bit about how you have to cross the abyss in order to get to heaven. Mm -hmm. you, you have to die to get to heaven, right? And, and that's just another metaphor. You know, so, you know, did I die? Was my relapse my, my spiritual death? And now am I reborn? So thinking of it that way, uh, it, it gave me a sense of fire and repurposing that I have not felt in a long time. And it was at that moment when I was like, you know what? After years of being told that I need to finally come out and tell my story, I'm going to do it. I got nothing left to lose. The world doesn't give a crap about me. I am literally on my own. So I'm going to tell my story and see what happens. And so that's why I started writing the book. Um, you know, and I, that's why I started moving my business, my fitness training business uh, to the Internet. Is because I, the last two businesses that I had were brick and mortar and they failed because the economy around here is not that great. Um, it's very competitive. And I realized that 
the internet would be a better place for me to build a business. There's mm -hmm. a lot higher potential as well. Uh, so that's what I wanted to get involved with. So I, I went on YouTube and I Googled uh, how to start a website or how to make money online. And I came across these videos and uh, I, I just became obsessed with watching this stuff. In the same way that I became obsessed with reading books on spirituality, I became obsessed with how am I going to make cash on the internet? Because I can't get a good job and all the gyms around here are owned by huge companies and I won't work for those guys because I don't trust authority figures. I don't trust large forms of government because they don't care about the little guy. And I'm a perfect example of that. They really don't. You know, you have to fight tooth and nail just to get a, a, a pat on the back in some of these companies. And, uh, you know, I have a huge problem with that. Um, and it has nothing to do with entitlement. It's just for the simple fact that human beings like to feel appreciated. You know, I mean, what's, what's one of the biggest arguments between couples is that one of them doesn't feel appreciated. You know, well, I think the same sort of conversation needs to take place in the workplace. You know, I don't think there's enough of that going around. Uh, you know, there, there's more layoffs and, and disciplines than there is like, hey, we really appreciated what you did here. It's almost like companies are afraid to do that because, you know, uh, maybe they don't want their employee getting too big at it. I don't know what it is, <laughs> mm -hmm. but who knows? Uh, it's, it's silly though. Um, so I realized that the only way that I'm going to make this happen is if I work for myself and I'm going to do it on the internet now. That's, that's what I'm doing. I'm, I've rebuilt myself. I've rebranded myself. I wrote. Uh, not one book. I actually have two books, and I'm writing a third right now. I haven't really publicly publicly mentioned that yet until just now. Okay. So, uh, yeah. so the book that I read, you wrote that in pretty quickly. I mean, in a couple of months, right? Uh, I started in August and finished in December. See, that to me is just incredible. <laughs> As someone who went to school for their MFA and has spent over two and a half years writing a book and I'm still nowhere near being done, I'm just, I'm really impressed that you wrote a book that quickly and that it's that, and it's good. I mean, I, you know, it was, um, it was really good. I mean, it made me want to talk to you and right. hear your story and, you know, um, and could you could you talk a little bit about that, like why you decided to publish it the way that you did, and what what plans you have for it? Um, sure, I I think that it's good because I've read so many books, and I sort of um, intrinsically picked up on what makes a good book a good book, you know, like just through the laws of observation, and so like for example. If you see a good painting and you're a painter, you can try to make a painting and you're like, ah, oh, well, this looks like crap. It doesn't look anything like this one over here. Because you, you have, you know, you have learned through observation that this painting is good. And so, you know, there's certain techniques that you have to mimic in order for it to also be good. And I think that's simply how I wrote my book. And uh, I wrote it quickly because, uh, it's not fiction. It's, it's not based in research. I don't have to spend much time doing research. Uh, 
I was just simply telling my story and what I've learned. So, you know, as easily as I'm sitting here talking to you is, is just how I put it down on paper. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it has a conversational tone. That's because, uh, I'm just telling a story. Right. You know? uh, right. And I could tell, I could tell when you were, when I was reading it, that you had a very specific target audience. And I may not yes. have been that target audience, but I could tell and appreciate that you were writing it for someone. Could you talk yeah. about who you're writing it for? I'm writing it for teens and young adults who uh, who are lost like I was. Uh, and I know that's a very hard demographic to reach. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know that because, you know, as I stated earlier, I was unreachable. I got to the point where I was unreachable. But what hopefully can happen with this book is that, you know, maybe a parent or a family friend can recognize that, you know, their, their family member, their friend, who's a young adult or teen going through something, maybe they can show them my book before it's too late. You know, um, this book is written by a guy who's literally been there. Uh, he went through all these things and, you know, like maybe, you know, a lot of teens don't like to listen to their parents because they're their parents, you know, like there, there's just something weird about that. Um, they're more than likely to listen to somebody else. So that's who it's for. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so I put it on a website called, uh, what pad, uh, it's W a T T P a D.com. And uh, uh, a coworker at my day job told me about it because uh, I do have a day job to support my side business of building this online thing. And they told me about it, that they had been on there and that I should check it out. So I did. And it turns out that the biggest demographic on Wattpad is, is teens and young adults. So I figured, you know, what better place to put it? That's where it's supposed to be is in front of their faces anyhow. So I did. I originally wanted it on Amazon. I wanted to publish it on Amazon, but, you know, uh, there was a money issue. And also, I didn't like the book. I actually think it's kind of bad. And I still do to a certain degree. You know, people tell me that it's good, but, you know, they say everybody's their own worst critic. And um, I think it can be improved. Uh, and I and I am improving it. I'm in the process of doing that now uh, because I still want it published. So eventually I will get to a place where it can it can actually be an actual book instead of, you know, just something you can read for free on, you know, this random platform. So. Mm-hmm. Right, right. OK. Um, OK. What are what are some of your goals for? the next maybe couple of years, maybe next few years? Mainly my goals now, um, in my book, I'm a big believer or I talk about how I'm a big believer of reverse engineering. And I have a chapter called reverse engineering the hero. And it explains to readers that you need direction. You know, everything is about direction. If you don't have direction, you're lost. Even if you're in a comfortable position, 
even if you get, you know, three meals a day, there's a roof over your head. If you don't know where you're going in two years, you're still lost. You're comfortably lost, but you're lost. Um, so I, I teach this reverse engineering concept where I ask people to think about what they want to be when they're retired. Like when you're retired, who do you want to be as a retired person? What's your, what, do, what do you do? And then like, then you take it a step back. Like, what did you do to get to that retirement stage? You know, did you, did you have a business? Did you, you know, did you do social work? Did you work for a private company? Did you, you know, what is it? It could be anything. And, and just like take the big picture and then start breaking it down into smaller parts along a chronological line. So you can get an idea or create what I call a roadmap to get to your hero image. You create a roadmap. So I have my own hero image. And so right now, uh, my number one priority uh, is to build a successful business uh, online by selling fitness products. And uh, those fitness products are meant for you know, anybody who's looking for another lifestyle to help, you know, help them with their depression or help them, you know, build their confidence or to feel better about themselves, maybe take care of a, you know, a clinical issue, whatever it is, my profession is fitness. That's my strength right now. Uh, and then apart from that, I also do, you know, the youth talks that I, I'm creating a presence in this, uh, the Facebook group that I'm an admin of. Um, you know, every now and then I, I will get somebody that messages me for advice or they just want to blow off some steam, whatever, you know, that's what I do when I can. Uh, and, and that's been, that's been doing well. You know, the internet thing has been doing well. Uh, it's very new right now, uh, and it's building slow momentum and it's actually, it's actually very exciting. I think if I keep going at the rate that I'm going, in a year, I will be able to quit my day job and just be totally 100% on the internet. And, uh, you know, I, I, I see the analytics going that direction. So once I'm able to, uh, I want to do bigger things. You know, I don't want to just be behind a desk all day. Uh, I want to get out and do stuff. I want to open up a gym. You know, I want to I want to travel. You know, and, and but more than that, I want to give back. Like, I, I don't like, yes, I want to do things for myself because I feel like I need to have some good things. I want to create good memories. You know, I've been, you know, I don't want to be stuck in, in North Texas my entire life. You know, I want to get out and travel and experience the world. But I also want to impact others, too. So how do I do this? What's the most effective uh, best way for me to do that? And, you know, I've thought, you know. I could open up a gym that caters to kids from troubled families, uh, kids that are at-risk youth. Uh, I, I would like to think that I can create some sort of a nonprofit gym, which is going to be new because as far as I know, most gyms are for-profit. I'd like to create a nonprofit uh, that offers free training, free fitness training to uh, troubled youth. You know, if they come in, and, you know, we can monitor their behavior, make sure that they're not on the street and we can teach them how to be fitness trainers. Uh, when they reach a certain age, we can help them get certified and, or, or, 
you know, be a trainer of their own or do whatever it is that they want to do out there. But I want to, I want to have a gym. I want to have one of the first gyms that has a library. in it. <laughs> so that, mm-hmm. that's kind of a far out thing. You know, it's just little fun things I think about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to build my dreams too far beyond that because who knows where it could go. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, I, I think that would have a pretty good meaning to some people. You know, people, uh, and, and something else I'd like to do, because I'm an animal lover as well, uh, I would like to take dogs that have been abused uh, and, and sort of brought back to health. I want to take these dogs, and then I want to put them through uh, school to where they can be certified emotional therapy dogs. Mm-hmm. And then I want to donate them to kids who have been through certain traumatic events, just, mm-hmm. just giving dogs, emotional therapy dogs, just give them to people who need them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think those two things would have more impact than me getting up on a stage and just doing a bunch of motivational talk. Mm-hmm. I, I think doing actual groundwork is going to be far more impacting than you know, something like that. And uh, I mean, I wouldn't mind something like that, but I don't want it to be my focus. Mm-hmm. I know it's a lot of people's focus. Uh, there's a lot of, a lot of public figures out there that, that primarily are into that thing. But, uh, uh, I, I want to be on the ground floor. I want to be doing things with people mm-hmm. on a one-on-one level. Cause I, I see as a fitness trainer, that's where I've learned. That's, that's where the most change takes place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so are there any, any other mentors, guides, any other people that, um, have influenced you that you want to mention? Just the, you know, just the people I've read in books, you know, Alan Watts, for example, um, he's not around anymore. Uh, but I read his books and he was a mentor. Uh, you know, uh, Tony Robbins, he's a mentor. Uh, he's, he's an easy answer to go to. Um, my brother, he was, he was a mentor. Um, he passed away recently too. Uh, and that, you know, that's, that's another interesting story, but it'd be another hour. (laughs) It could easily be another hour. But, um, you know, he was a mentor. He was one of the people I felt that, that truly could understand me from my perspective. You know, mm-hmm. he, you know, he grew up in the same house. Uh, and, but, but he had a different outcome than, than I did. Like, where, whereas I went down, he went up. And, but he had his downfall too. And that, that ultimately led to his passing. And it was his downfall that was also a catalyst for me to start doing what I'm doing right now. So a lot of this, uh, in a way, is dedicated to him. You know, it's because uh, we both talked about doing stuff like this together. You know, you know, he says, you know, with he says with my people skills and, and you know your story and motivation, like we could do this. And. Uh, you know, at, at the time we were having these discussions, you know, we were both dealing with 
things that were more like in our faces and need to be taken care of at, at this moment. And, uh, you know, unfortunately he passed before we could do any of that. But a lot, a lot of this, you know, when I do this work, I think of him quite a bit. And a matter of fact, uh, me and my brother grew up listening to nineties alternative music. I, I love this stuff. I don't know why, like you're, you're the post grunge and grunge rock of the nineties, uh, all the bands. I love it. And, my whole book was written while I was listening to it. <laughs> so, I mean, that's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. um, no, just, you know, there was just John, really. I mean, John was the most significant character in my whole life, as far as, you know, mentors are going. Uh, because he did the most change, you know. Um, I was a terrible person. And he gave me a book. And said I didn't have to be anymore, mm -hmm. yeah. and that that changed everything. Mm -hmm. Um. So, why did you reach out to me on the Facebook page, and um, like what was it about what I had written that inspired you, you to reach that, out? That that you were online. Uh, you're doing your podcast. Uh, I really, I, it was the hero's journey, you know, the Carlina show, you know, telling inspiring stories and things of that nature that paralleled really strongly with what I feel like what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I'm an entrepreneur at heart, you know, because I have to be, and I also enjoy doing it. So, I have this goal to do this thing. And I also believe that, you know, people don't get places without the help from others, you know, and you have a way of showing a story. Uh, and I have a website. I have a way of showing people to what you're doing. And we both are trying to inspire people. We're both trying to get people to realize that, you know, there's a, a greater mystery going on. And, and, but here's a blueprint though. Like, don't worry. You know, that, I mean, you can, you can just look into the hero's journey and that's what, that's what it's all about. You know? Mm -hmm. uh, so that's why, you know, I felt like it's, it's my natural, it, it's my natural thing to connect with people. And I see that you like to connect with people also. And one of the best things that I learned a long time ago was, you know, uh, you should spend your time around the people who are like you and who are trying to go the same places that you're going. Uh, because if not, you're just going backwards. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's another thing I like to tell some of the young adults. It's like, look, if you feel like you're the most sane person in the room, you're in the wrong room. <laughs> you know, you need to find other friends. Like, you know, if, if you want to grow up to be a doctor, you need to quit hanging out with Bob who smokes weed all day. Like, he's not ever going to help you. You know, he might help you relax after a hard day, but, like, you got to change the people you hang out with. So I'm a big believer in uh, hanging out with the right people mm -hmm. and, you know, networking and things of that nature. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you reached out. Thank you. <laughs> glad I am, too. Yeah, Colin Cole. 
So, well, is there is there anything else you wanted to say or anything else you wanted to mention before we wrap up? If anybody listening has not studied the hero's journey, you're doing a serious disservice to yourself. And uh, it literally tells you where you're going in life, regardless of where you are. And, and we all seem to have this sort of, oh, but you don't understand where I'm coming through because I'm doing this and that. Well, you know, that's that's all comparative psychology. Mm-hmm. It, the genius of the hero's journey is that it 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 connects directly to any story. You know, Joseph Campbell analyzed thousands of stories and came up with this blueprint. So it, it, it can apply to anybody. And mm-hmm. if you haven't looked at it yet, you very much need to, and you need to consider it. Um, and, and lastly, lastly, I want to say that I've seen a lot of people get stuck in this cycle of learning, right? Now, we should always learn, but we don't want to only learn. There comes a time when we need to put down the books and get to work. And it's realizing that when you need to do that and then actually taking steps to do it. Because I think a lot of people struggle with procrastination. And, you know, sitting there telling yourself that you're not ready yet, you need to learn one more thing, that's just a coping mechanism. Just put down the books, quit overanalyzing yourself, and just get to work. Yeah. And then, you know, see what happens from there. Right. And, it, and it's good things. It's all, it's all good things. That concludes episode five with Benjamin David. I want to thank him for his time and coming on the show. And if you would like more information about him or his contact information, you can visit the Carlina Show podcast website. That's Carlina, C-A-R-L-E-E-N-A dot fireside dot F-M. And there you'll find links to the show notes, his contact information, social media, and a link to his book, Our Hero Within. Um, Also, you can support the Carlina Show podcast by rating and reviewing on iTunes, or you can visit our new Patreon page, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and search for the Carlina Show. And your support will um, help other people find the show and ensure that we can continue uh, sharing heroes' journeys with you. So uh, until next time, thank you.